and there now it's live oh that looks so nice too okay <laughs> hello everyone hi <laughs> um i'm gonna be kind of like marveling at my own screen <laughs> a lot of this stream uh so in case you can't tell we're trying a new uh thing here uh andy has talked a lot about uh Streamyard, which is uh, a program that's good for this kind of stuff and it's way better than discord already hi res andy <laughs> So you, you can almost count all of his individual beard hairs. <laughs> but, oh no! Uh, that way. <laughs> um, we're gonna. So we're gonna try this. Um, Y'all, let me know if there's any, anything weird going on. Let me know if we sound uh, good. Um, so if uh, if Andy's loud enough and I'm loud enough, um, let me know because this isn't through OBS. Like I'm not using OBS at all, uh, which is weird. Um, so mm -hmm. do let me know if there's any problems. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, hello, welcome back to, uh, uh, what is, yeah, Lorebeard. <laughs> um, yeah, we are, uh, really excited for today. Um, and we're really excited for, uh, what's coming after today as well. But, uh, as I said over on Twitter and the discord and everything, we are going to be talking today about DMing. Because something that I've actually been bugging Andy a lot about and figured would actually make for a good kind of public discussion is advice on DMing or GMing, uh, depending on which systems you're playing, and kind of getting little bits of information for someone who actually knows what they're doing. <laughs> because I don't know if you've watched Lawhammer streams and then my enemy within streams, but there is a very noticeable quality difference <laughs> in, in the GMing style. <laughs> Uh, a GM who knows what they're doing, and the other one that's like, ah, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, well, uh, judging by the chat, I've got to change my name to Lawmaster here because it's really amusing everyone. So we do oh, that yes. while you. There you go. <laughs> yeah, let me just quickly do it. Uh, uh, uh. I like that. I like that a lot. That go. works. There we go. <laughs> um. Uh. So. Um, we're just going to go ahead and hop right into it. Uh, I do have some questions that have come from people as well that we'll get into a little later. And, uh, with this very cool system we have now, uh, chat, I can actually, whenever y'all have like an interesting question, we can, I could do this where yeah, I hit it and it, it shows up and that's it cool. It's hey. so slick. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. That's really, really cool. Uh, so very, very cool. I don't know why everybody's saying oi. But all right, uh, <laughs> so um, let's get started. So uh, I've got some questions I want to start with, and then we'll kind of get into more of the general things. But oh, yeah, oh, man, you can tell I'm super off my game because I'm more mystified with this system than anything else. Uh, software. This is, uh, which, am I mirrored? I am mirrored. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Andy Law, by the way. I don't know how you could be here and not know who he is by this point, but in the very unlikely chance that you don't, uh, Andy Law is a fantastic human being on top of a oh. writer and map cartographer and storyteller and writer and editor, and <laughs> it, it kind of can just kind of keep going. Um, but he is sort of one of the, the modern savants on uh, Warhammer and all of its shapes and forms, which is wild. He makes me feel like I don't know anything, just as a oh. reference. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, Andy, if there's anything you want to say, just to kind of... Uh, I'll add a couple of things that are relevant it, to this. Sure. Yeah, I'll add a couple of things that are relevant to this particular stream. I have been GMing, DMing, 
storytelling, whatever the hell you want to call it with role-playing games, for almost 40 years. I'm so old. I have been doing it for a very, very long time. And for those 40 years, a significant number, I was doing it terribly. For one reason or another. You think you're doing well, but you realize there's things you can learn. As we reach my final, let's say, evolved state that I am in today, um, I I wouldn't so much say that I'm a great GM, but what I am is a GM that knows what he likes. I'm a GM that tries to ensure that the players get what they like and that we have the maximum amount of fun as possible. And to give a single example on that, I originally was intending the Lawhammer streams, the ones that we're doing just now with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, to be completely different to the ones that we actually have just now. But the players just enjoyed the slightly more lighter-hearted tone, a lot more amusing um, than perhaps I originally planned it. So I pitched it towards them, because it's all about ensuring everybody at the table has fun. Awesome. So uh, I think the first question I have to kind of just take us straight into it uh, and get into it is, so one of the hardest things and uh, easily most intimidating, I think, for a lot of uh, first-time GMs or DMs is when sitting down at a table and going, all right, I have a plan. There are things that I have designed for this session or I'm working with pre-written stuff and I know the path I want the players to take, but inevitably... The players are not going to take that path. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> They're going to go... There, some, there's going to be curveballs. How do you plan for what cannot be planned for? How do you adjust you, for that? You either A, don't, or build a sandbox. Um, I personally am a great uh, believer in just winging it. Um, as in just knowing the setting that you're in and thus adapting whatever it is that you present to what the players themselves are doing, and then being aware that as a GM, you're in a position where you can very easily channel them back towards whatever particular plot that you're looking for them to pursue. There is also, uh, I'll just say this as an aside before I carry on with that, you also have another option before that, which is talk to your players first and say, for example, we are going to be playing Plot X, let's say the enemy within, which involves your characters going in that direction. So just bloody do that, will you? Because that will make the game <laughs> so much easier. Now, that's one way of dealing with it. And you can actually uh, pass over and delegate some of the responsibility of that making sense to the players. You can say, well, I am presenting this type of story. Why does your character, the character that you've built to play in this, want to engage with that? Why are they going to pursue that? And then the players in a position where they have agency, um, they can ensure that their character matches the story that you're building. And you've also got a bit of a dialogue going where if they move off in a different direction, you can very easily say, well, I intended generally after the session, not during, because it sounds a bit weird. Um, but after the session, you say, well, we kind of need to go in this direction. How do you think we can do that? So rather than the GM trying to force it, which can be super uncomfortable and feel very real roady and weird. Instead, everybody's sitting around and collaboratively building towards the super cool, awesome plot that you intend to present. However, pulling back again to the original point I was going to say. Uh, two loose ones. One is know your world. It's a piece of standard GMing advice. And that is, if you're going to be presenting a world, make sure you know what your version of that world is going to be. And don't skimp. 
read it. Go from end to end if it's an established setting, or if it's one that you're building, have a good thing. You don't need to write it all down. You don't need to build giant wikis, although you'll find for most fantasy worlds, Warhammer, for example, there are already giant wikis out there that you can use, and they'll give you tons of uh, ideas and hopefully plot lines that you could pursue if the players decide, you know what? You've just told me that this king wants to employ me. Screw that. I'm going that way because I think he's dodgy. <laughs> and you're like, ah, oh, no. They're now wandering off into the hills. What happens in there? But if you know the setting really well, let's say Warhammer, you know that these particular hills are inhabited by particular things that, and you can start throwing those at the PCs. And if you want to guide them back in another direction, you can do so by putting obstacles in their place or things that make it look difficult. Equally, um, often players are actually kind of keen to engage with the plot anyway, because most people who are playing role-playing games are cool. They, they really want to get stuck in. So another way of trying to guide them back is you can give them fixed agendas. You can give them ideas. This is something I do in Lawhammering quite a lot and if you start looking for it you'll see it and by that i mean uh say for example a player is trying to figure out where they're going to go next you can say well here's the obvious things you could do you could go here you could go here or you could go here or something else that you come up with and by doing that you almost always channel them to one of those three directions so let's say they were in uber's Reich, a classic setting for warhammer fantasy roleplay and the character was a rat catcher you could say well, there's a Rat Patchers Guild that you could go and engage with. Um, your character may have a religious bent in one direction or another. You could go in that direction. And you know those locations already, so that's super easy for you to present should they go there. And if you are using a setting like, say, for example, Uber's Right, we wrote into that two adventure hooks for every single location in the game already. So as a GM, you've got all of the material sitting there ready to be played if you're in a position where you haven't got it all prepped already. And that's something else you can do, and that is be aware that your players are going to come up with some crazy ideas and have a couple of things sitting on the back burner that aren't necessarily tied to any location. They're just things you can throw at the players to help guide them. They could be NPCs. They could be a variety of different locations that they could pass through, uh, random events or events that appear random to the PCs at least. And you can throw them at the PCs to try and guide them back to where you want them to be. But really, ultimately, it's down to what sort of game you want to play. And if you're playing a relatively fixed plot line, I strongly, strongly recommend you sit down with your players at the beginning and say, we're playing a relatively fixed plot line. So let's figure out how we can best get there together to build the super coolest story that we can that makes us all go, yeah, freaking amazing. Yes. Um, which is generally a better way than just going, here's your characters. Away you go. Here's the plot. And they engage with bits of the plot. They get confused by other parts of the plot. Some of it makes no sense to them at all. They make up some random crap about the plot that you never intended because they see something. They go, well, that's it. It's clearly this <laughs> giant big bad guy. Yeah, yeah, that's where we should be heading. And you're left going, really? Okay. And that's often where the best role play situations come from. The players create their own plots. They sit down and theorize and go, I'm quite convinced that all of these things are linked. And you're like, well, they are. Well, you know what? They could be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't, when you're, you see your GM start writing things going, yeah, 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 no, you're on, yeah. <laughs> I'm not taking notes, honest. <laughs> I see that you found that line that I left for you. <laughs> so, um, kind of to bounce off that, um, yes. a follow up question I would have then. Is so like taking the enemy within as an example. Um, enemy mm -hmm. within is like it's my first experience running a pre 
uh, written campaign. So instead of me just creating Mine also, uh, yeah. <laughs> so instead of just like nice bridge, yeah. So instead of just making stuff up in my head, uh, you know, in like take because you know in prior campaigns I taken my knowledge of the Warhammer world and tried to just run a campaign based off that, which was fun. Like it worked great and it was a ton of fun. But this is my first time using uh, pre-generated information, and it provides a lot of really interesting challenges. Um, especially if you're someone like me where like you have to read something. I have to, I can't just read something and memorize it. I have to like read it multiple times and then I have to like write it down, um, to also get it to just stay. And even then it is like, it's intimidating how much information is. is in these books. Like even just not even including the companion books, um, but also including like, it's a multi-part series. So like there's technically relevant information in the later parts, uh, on top of just the part you're in. <laughs> So what would be your advice to someone that like, you know, someone has heard they're, they're watching Lawhammer or they've shown up in the Lordbeards uh, or they just they hear about how awesome the enemy within is and they pick it up and then they open it and they go, holy shit, this is so much text. How yeah. in God's name am I supposed to do this? Okay, so um, I am going to do a couple of suggestions that perhaps are not going to be welcome, but I'm going to suggest them regardless <laughs> because it's useful. And then I'm going to add a couple of extra suggestions that will hopefully wrap that up and make it a bit easier. Um, first, my first suggestion is um, know your Warhammer world, know what you want it to be. And if you don't have a version, that's cool as well, because you the version that you present can be the version that's simply in the book. Easy. Next one, read it. Now, I know that's really obvious. Don't worry about parsing it or understanding it or getting every single subtle plot line or how you're going to portray it or present it. Don't worry about any of that. Read it like a story. One of the best things about a well-presented campaign book, whether it's The Enemy Within or anything else, it's just a damn good read. It should give you an idea of where the coolest, most memorable moments are. And this is something that I think... As a GM, you should always be aware of, as you're reading through it, whichever one makes you go, that's so freaking cool. I, oh, I'm really looking to see what that looks like. Mm. They're the parts that you should put maybe even the little post-it in, just to remember that you really liked that bit when you went by. Because those are the bits that your natural excitement will also bleed through to the players as you present that bit, and they get... Ooh, 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 there's something cool coming. Look how happy the GM is. Um, everybody's in enthusiasm will build off of each other. So just read it first, end to end. And if you can, read the whole campaign. And don't worry about remembering or understanding any of it. Uh, <laughs> most of the campaign books will have a quick summary at the beginning regarding the basic events. If it's the enemy within the actual core plot, the first book is super simple. The second one, not too complicated, and so on until we hit the end. Um, so that's the first step. Once you've done that, you'll have an idea of whether you like it or not. Um, there's going to be some parts that you're like, meh, that doesn't quite fit how I see Warhammer, or there'll be other parts that'll just make you go, that's beyond anything I'd ever considered. That's the coolest thing I've ever read. Oh my fucking God, I'm really looking forward to doing that bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go back to the beginning again, and you don't worry about all the rest beyond the bits that you're going to be presenting next. Um, so each session, uh, even if you're running a long session, and most role-playing sessions rarely go beyond about four hours, 
Um, often they're in our modern environment, not more than two. Sometimes for dedicated folks, there might be as much as six, but normally it's not longer than four hours. And that's a surprisingly small amount of material in most pre-generated books. That's often not more than about 10 pages worth. And 10 pages worth is relatively easy to parse, relatively easy to get to grips with. You can uh, work your way through those parts. And if you, when you're pacing the session and you're presenting it, if you think that the players are moving through it more quickly than you prefer, you can just throw some other random thing to engage them, an NPC to talk to them for a bit, a game that they can play on the side, something to do. Um, so you don't need to worry too much about the bigger overarching plots. You just need to worry about the bit that's there. One of the great joys of a well-constructed pre-written scenario is that it presents everything that you need to have presented in the text. Um, if you're someone like me who perhaps finds it difficult to engage with text and read what's actually there, there's a variety of just general tips that I could throw in, like highlight the areas that you think are important. If your scenario doesn't call out the important parts with a different style of uh, font, like for example, tests, make sure that you know where all the tests are. If in your adventure they're not marked, just put a little highlighter across it. Yes, I know that that's a crime if you're buying a book and you're writing any books. If you want to do it digitally, that's just as capable. And in fact, if you are GMing digitally, which almost everybody is these days, just copy paste all the bits into whatever note-taking software you have and you can just have it on screen in the order that you require all the cut paste pieces that you need right in front of you because it's all been written already for you. That can really help too. So <clears throat> just to quickly sum on that, number one, read the fucker. Pardon me if I'm not being square, but I, I'm Scottish. Yeah, it's, it's okay. You can say fuck here. It's all right. <laughs> read the fucker um, and, and understand it as much as you can, but read it. And then go back to the first one and read the bits you need. If you're someone who finds that enjoys reading, read it multiple times because then that will familiarize yourself with all of it. But don't worry too much. The biggest uh, issue with many GMs is they get so caught up in trying to do it perfectly. Meh, don't worry about it. Just get stuck mm. in, see how it works. And then when you hit session two, you'll already have an idea of how the players will work through material. You'll have an idea of the things that you find hard or easy. And by doing that, you can modify your prep for the next time. And after each session, you don't need to take notes about how to do your prep. You just need to think of which bits am I finding harder, which bits am I finding easier, and concentrate on the bits you're finding harder and make sure that the bits you're finding easier are nicely done too. It's um, difficult to provide anything other than the most general of advice though, because individuals, <laughs> it's easy, because individuals say, yeah. I find this bit hard. And I can say, that's how to deal with that bit. But generally speaking, everybody finds some things easy and some things hard. Some people just read something once and that's it. They've got it. Other people need to read it like 12 times and they still have no idea what's going on. Um, and my general advice is if you're one of those, is don't worry about reading the whole thing. Just read the small chunks that you need for the next session. A little bit like a teacher. You don't actually need to know everything. You just need to know everything that's going to be presented for that lesson. Yeah. And uh, I I definitely can reinforce the idea of like reading it through. E like, even if you're just like, I'm not gonna remember any of this. I think it's so important to read it through because it can help provide like, I know one advantage the, to the way my memory does work is I can remember where I read something if I can't necessarily remember what that thing was. So even if it's not, oh, I'm gonna have all of this memorized for next session, it's if I forget something or if I'm sitting there and having a moment of, oh, what's that thing? I know immediately where I can find it without having to pause and have to like 
reread the whole book because I think that's the important thing is you don't want to have to like freeze okay. frame. Right. Um, so at the table, get stuck. I, I do have some loose recommendation there too. If you're at the table and you're desperate to get it right according to the book, but you can't remember where it is, just stop and realize it's a game. Any small minor detail that you make wrong isn't going to matter. Uh, that that is now how it's presented in your world. Instead, I would suggest um, have post-its or some similar similar note-taking something for the key areas. Um, but if you find yourself looking for something longer than just more than five or ten seconds, even that is too long. Just make it up. You already know the general gist of the story. Do the stuff that you think is cool, and that will very much merge through. And I'll call out specifically Raw Hammering, which, of course, you should go and watch all of you people out there. See me uh, rant and rave in a corner. Yeah, if you're um, not watching Raw Hammer, then you're missing out on literally prime <laughs> Warhammer content right now. <laughs> obviously, I agree with that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I frequently do this and i will often on a whim look at something that the players are doing seeing something that they're enjoying interacting with and i will add extra depth there that may never have been in the book and i do that on purpose because it's all about entertaining everybody yourself because you're creating cool shit that you love and your players because they're engaging with cool shit that's really entertaining them and they're getting the work their way through. Now, entertainment doesn't mean it always makes them happy. Sometimes it'll make them sad. Sometimes it'll make them frustrated, infuriated, mm. or confused. All of those can be entertaining in different ways because confusion can lead to later understanding as it all begins to slot into place. So don't think you're there to try and make everybody laugh or to make everybody um, super, super happy. You're there to be as entertaining as possible for whatever story you're creating. And you'll find that as you play and the more you play, the more you'll understand what you enjoy and what they enjoy, and you can craft the world around that. Awesome. Um, yeah, on low hammering, there's an awful lot of... I mean, I've, I've basically turfed out half the book. <laughs> well, and something... Yeah, and what I've found has allowed me to feel like I'm getting more into comfortable shoes is mm -hmm. when I am slicing parts out and replacing them with things that are like okay i understand this is the way this story is told but this would be much more exciting for my players or this would be yeah. relevant to something that so like uh in my campaign i didn't do the um the bounty hunter attack on the boat because for my party they're like running around the city and doing stuff and, and they have this whole thing with a manticore plot going on so i'm like mm -hmm, oh mm -hmm. okay he knows they're going after the manticore because he's been tracking them this whole time he's gonna lure them into a monster cave where they think it's gonna be there then he'll spring the ambush so they're fighting amidst like bones and the trap is different but i still yeah. use like the burning oil and i still use the characters uh and that ended up being a really fun thing um yeah it was different but it was similar and i i think that's the important thing is using um, I, I found for me, my anxiety went down significantly when I stopped thinking of it as, oh, I need to tell the story that's written on these pages. And instead just being like, I am loosely <laughs> drawing. I am, I am trying to tell the story inspired by these pages. Yeah. And I think that's the best way to view it. In fact, um, I'm busy writing, finishing off actually an adventure called Ship of Fools, which is an all everybody can play this adventure. It doesn't matter what role-playing game you're using. And that all the way through it is very much make it up, do it your own way. Um, the whole idea of a pre-written adventure is not to tell you how to do it, it's to inspire you to make your own version. Um, and on the low-harming side, to move back to that, um, my version of part four, the Horned Rat, 
will take almost nothing from the printed one. The same will be the case for My Empire and Ruins. Um, it's going to be a completely different setup because it's going to be a conclusion towards my campaign. And my campaign mm. has had a different build-up to the one that might necessarily have been presented inside the official books. I'm going to have a much deeper tapestry to draw from than the books could ever potentially present. I mean, just at the very basics, you've got all the different prime estates in the right clan, all the different ones in Midland, and then the rest of the empire as well, all of which are engaging with each other in a variety of different ways, none of which are detailed inside any of the official role-playing game books because it's just too much information to present. Um, where slowly but surely it will come out in dribs and drabs throughout the course of my campaign, and then all of those uh, loose threads will tie together at the end, one way or another. Um, my emperor will be a different emperor to the one that's presented in the books. My version of all the characters will be a bit different. And that's how it depends for everybody's game at home. I have been working on Warhammer fantasy roleplay for a very long time. Um, I've been, I've run entire chat communities for it. I used to run the Black Library community for Warhammer fantasy roleplay um, with some other moderators back in uh, the early noughties. Um, and every single person who says, hi, I'm playing this particular adventure. How would you do it? How would you do it? Everybody answers with a different reply. Everybody's got their own take on what would be super cool. Um, and often when someone's detailing how they present an adventure, you just look and go, that's nothing like how it was written. And that's awesome because they're taking the inspiration from it and they're making it their own. They make it match their version of the Warhammer world in this particular case and their version of the Warhammer world that the players have engaged with, which may be different to the canonical world by some significant measure. And that's cool because it's in your own home and it can be whatever version of Warhammer you want. If you want to have f griffins flying through the air with, I don't know, squadrons of gyrocopters pretty much on a daily basis, <laughs> great! Um, if you want to have greater demons stalking through the streets of various Warhammer towns on an altogether too frequent basis, again, great. However, if you want it to be all dark and gritty and things like magic and big rune swords and all the rest are distant from the players, things that they might see at a distance and desperately wish they could get hold of and then find themselves embroiled in a plot that's awful, equally, that's great. Uh, it's entirely up to you how you present your games at home and you don't need to be enslaved by the setting. The setting is there to inspire you. Trust me, if you look at the actual official stuff Games Workshop produces, they are in no way tied down to what they have written previously. I think that that's something that uh, anyone who's read lots of Warhammer books knows. You read anything from the first edition of Fantasy Roleplay, it does not match the second, which does not match the third, which does not match the fourth. And that's because the studio itself has completely rejigged how different things work as each edition has different requirements. And sometimes that means entire characters change, whether something like Eltharian, Blind Warder, Tory of Rest, or previous to that, Griffin Riding Mighty Hero, and then, oh no, he's back to be a Griffin Riding <laughs> Mighty Hero again, and oh no, he's blind again! What's going on? Um, and that's, if the studio can do it, so can you. Yeah, and I, I think probably the number one question I get where it's, I, I understand where the question's from, but it's kind of like, it's, it's a question that you almost shouldn't be asking is when people show up and they're like, hey, I'm running a role-play game uh, I get DMs all the time of people saying, oh, I'm running a role-play game and um, I'm thinking of doing X or a player's thinking of doing X. Is that canon? Like, is that, can I do that? And it's like, well, it's your, it's your story. So yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like it, I, I, if you, if you're wanting to look for specific explanations 
to try and explain how maybe you can get there, that's fine. Like that's that's one thing. But um probably the one thing that I worry about sometimes because I I've seen people have this I I guess fear, um, which I can understand where it's coming from, is being like, oh, I'm scared of telling the story and people being like, oh, well, that isn't how that would happen. It's like, well, if your player says that, they're they're being an asshole. So <laughs> if you don't like it, you know, leave the table. Um yeah, so I and it's, that's I think that's a really critical aspect of it is uh if you want to go wild with it, go wild with it. Um like yeah. heck, I was just looking at some of the questions that were submitted uh for this conversation. There are a couple that I'm like, "Oh yeah, this is you know, there there's one talking about uh we we have a question for someone that talks about asking how they would do an uh a Warhammer specific question, but they're like, "How would I handle turning an elf into a vampire?" And it's like yeah I, you know i i we, you know we could speculate on that you know if, if someone was like would that would happen in my world no that would not happen in my world but in your world that could absolutely happen and i could try yeah. and like describe how vampires form normally and you can try and extrapolate that information of okay well how would that have an effect on an elf and stuff like that um but um yeah i think i think that's the the really important thing that I think any, and it's super understandable because I think almost anybody goes through it when they're starting off is being scared of like, oh, I have to tell this specific thing. It's like, no, it's yeah. just there to help you tell your version of the story. And as long as y'all yeah. are having fun, it, it literally doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, um, it's why though, to uh, return to the first question, it's why though I do suggest you read through the entirety of the adventure first. Because then if you've got even the loosest idea of where everything's going, because you've read it once, if you do make changes, you'll be loosely aware of the fact that that could have impacts later as well, which is why making sure at the beginning you do read through everything that you intend to play is hmm. strongly recommended. However, if you are someone who's going to find it difficult to go and purchase all of those books, if you're playing, say, for example, a 10-book <laughs> setup, um, I fully understand if you don't do that. Um, one of the, I think one of my regrets... Um, concerning the enemy within was because of the way it was produced, there was no way to do an entire campaign summary at the very beginning of the first book. Um, and that was because the later books were still in flux in a position where they were still being rejected, mm. reworked. And indeed, because I left before it was finished, the final versions are massively different to the ones that uh, I was going to put in place anyway. So I'm really glad I kind of didn't put a summary at the beginning because if I had it done, they'd have been left in a position going, well, now we're sort of bound by what's there. That sucks because we've got different ideas. Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, so, yeah, don't be beholden to it. Run with it. Enjoy yourselves. Relax. And over the course of the sessions, you'll find what works best for you. Yeah. And uh, Jock Diego, we, we kind of talked about earlier um, whether to read the entire adventure or just the part that you're on. It just depends on your personal style. I think most would recommend reading the entire thing. Um, I would. Yeah. That way, when you're sitting there and something comes up, you can remember, OK, I need to get to this point eventually. And like this character might be important because uh, that can help inform decisions. Um, in fact, I'll go a little bit further. If that is an intimidating uh, step, which it can be because it's a lot of books, what you can do is just skim all the chapter headings in the contents. It gives you a very clear idea of where the story is going. Um, it's almost a summary. The chapter headings, not just the chapters themselves, but all the individual 
uh, headings in, within each one of the chapters. Uh, if you read through all of those, you get a strong idea of what's happening. If there's any that jump out at me, you go, what does that mean? You can just dive to the specific page, read that bit and go, ooh. Um, but that means that you can, <laughs> yeah. you can skim five books worth of content in minutes and have a very clear idea of what each one of those books is going to be doing. Yeah. And that's going to be helpful for any system. Like that's even, yep. not even just for the enemy within, like, even if you're like inspired by like critical role or you're picking up some mm -hmm. other new system, that's wacky and weird. I think all of those translate very easily to those different ideas. Yeah. And because they are literally publishing stuff for different systems. Yeah, um, I was reading, rereading Mask of Nyarlathotep again the other day, which is one of the most famous Call of Cthulhu uh, settings. I, I worked quite a lot on that when I did all the maps, I did all the handouts, and a bunch of other bits and bobs. Um, and uh, the same applies there. If you work your way through all of the headings, each one of the chapter bits and what's inside each one, it basically tells you the story in short form. And it's supposed to, because if you're a GM... Uh, you need to be able to find that information super fast if you're sitting in front of your players with a book, which means that generally speaking, the developers, people like myself, who are putting these things together, we're looking for chapter names and headings and individual section headings that immediately tell you what they're about. They're not meant to be obscure. They're meant to be easy to access. So if, for example, you're playing the enemy within and you're playing a barge section and you're meant to be in a particular town, it should just say the bloody town's name as that chapter section you can mm. immediately jump over there and go there it is there and then you can look in underneath that one and say what happens in it by just looking at each one of the individual headers and that makes it super easy to reference while you're at play but it also means if you're doing prep it makes it super easy to find out what each one of those locations is supposed to be doing and what they do for the overall campaign without necessarily having to read everything awesome so uh, kind of pivoting into some more questions. So this one's more kind of GM specific, not for a particular system. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And it's a question from Hawk, one of our uh, lovely moderators. He's asked, how do you hey, handle, uh, how do you handle a party that specifically wants to be evil or villainous? Uh, what is, uh, what are, without making things too difficult for them or uh like especially if you're putting in a setting that is more about defeating the bad guys and also like kind of what are the pitfalls to watch out for if you're wanting to do the quote-unquote evil campaign mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay so if this is your plan and this is your intent as in you are playing an evil campaign it's super easy it's almost like any other campaign you just need to decide what sort of species you are what sort of cult what sort of naughtiness that you're involved with and then figure out an adventure that the players can engage with that works from there. One thing I would recommend on this loose side is that you've got to remember that evil people don't, strictly speaking, generally exist unless they are actually properly broken within their minds. Most people who are evil by most people's standards are personally good guys. They think they're doing the right thing. They are moving forwards towards the, what they believe to be the best outcome, the best goal that they can have. The world is not split into very simple nine slots of alignment <laughs> that D&D likes to pretend. Um, th that's a generally good guide for perhaps trying to understand how characters may act. But even then, it's a bit broken because it doesn't really speak to proper people. Proper people are complex. They're difficult. What one person sees as evil, another person sees as not just acceptable, but normal. And the first thing you need to discuss when you're dealing with an evil party is at your session zero, what does that mean? Mm. If you're in Warhammer, playing Skaven is 
leaps and bounds beyond playing humans or whatever. Equally, though, playing Dark Elves is completely different to playing something like Skaven. What each of these individual societies uh, understand and respect and do not respect what is right and what is wrong within these individual communities um, needs to be understood before you can really engage with it properly. If not, it just turns into a bit of a murder hobo uh, situation where you're wandering around just randomly stabbing things and inevitably turns into, well, our game is either going to be weird because all the people who would stop them sort of don't. Yeah, they're all the, the NPCs, NPCs are dead. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, they, they, they just sort of ignore it just so the game keeps on going. Or alternatively, you're all going to be dead and imprisoned because you've really not done anything that's acceptable by anybody's uh, standards. That being the case, you need to make sure that it's understood before you play what's going to happen according to the type of actions that they could take. Because if you start by saying, we're going to play ourselves an evil campaign, everyone goes, yay, we're all playing evil cultists. Yay. Oh, I'm an evil cultist. I stab him to death. Yay. Oh, the police coming. Or what is it? The watch. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> oh, 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 you're imprisoned. What? Like, yeah. Boom! No one's going to have fun, or alternatively, they're just left to wantonly slay, and everyone's like, wow, I can get off with anything, and it gets very weird. You need to have a very clear set of frameworks, not just for the world in which they live in, but for the societies that they're playing in. Lastly, um, it's worth saying what happens when you've got the player group that goes from being, we are the glorious heroes, into, we are the murder hobos. Um, and, <laughs> and that can happen. It happens a lot, actually, particularly with campaigns where it hasn't really had a lot of session zero or chat beforehand about where things are going. And one player just goes off the rails entirely and goes, yes. well, I'll murder my way out of this. Yeah, especially if um, it's like a newer player. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. Um, uh, a very common one, for example, well, I've stabbed the shopkeeper. It's my shop now. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you think that's how society works? Yeah. You've been um, caught stealing. The, the, the man says, I saw you stealing from me. Give it back. And you're like, well, I stab him. It's like, okay. <laughs> here we go. Uh, here we go. Uh, and here comes the watch. And yeah, um, the easy way to say, oh, you can fix that simply by having a session zero and understanding the world doesn't really work if you haven't done that. If you're halfway through a campaign and you've got players that are acting in a variety of ways that will be contrary to the way the setting works, because they should all be arrested, they should all be stopped, they should all be hung or whatever, but nobody wants that to happen to their PCs because boring. Um, it's up to yourself how you resolve this. There are many different options. My preferred one is always talk to them. Always. Yeah. Not necessarily in the heat of the moment during the course of a session, because people can get quite defensive if their uh, individual choices are questioned. They get quite antsy sometimes. They get a little bit, no, but uh, I'm definitely doing this. And they start driving harder towards it, rather than allowing it to go without much resistance from anyone else, allowing some loose repercussions to hit, so they're aware that trouble could be coming. And then after the session, sitting down and saying, You've done these things. This is what should happen. What do you think is a good way of resolving this? I'm letting them talk it through. Um, mm. Because most people are super reasonable. Um, and if you give them the tools for their own destruction, for example, this is the sort of watch that's in the area. These are the sort of people who will respond. These are the sort of, I don't know, depending on your setting, the wizards who will be aware of what you've done because of the evilness that you have created or whatever it may be. The player often goes, oh, well, shit, I'm in trouble, aren't I? 
well, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. I'm going to have to not do that thing or I'm I'm, I'm doomed. And I'm, I'm going to have to do this one. And you can talk it through with them. That's generally speaking my first port of call always. Communication. The more you let something just go, the more it festers and becomes something that you are equally unhappy with. <laughs> Yeah, and ultimately, good, good, good advice for all relationships, to be frank. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. You're all there to have fun. That's what it's all about. And if somebody has fun murdering their way through the world, it's not for you to say that that's wrong. It's for you to say that might not match the game that we're playing. That's fine. It's for yeah. you to say maybe you'd be better playing something else. That's also fine. And it's also fine for you to say that character is going to come to an end in this world. And I, I really love that you love this shit. Um, but let's make sure that when that character does come to an end, the story that happens is super awesome. Um, because there's nothing wrong with having a broken murder hobo. Um, because you can have them murder or die or perhaps have a heroic um, end where they actually turn and become good at the end because of something they've done. And maybe a realization. Or maybe they are just the worst and the players themselves hunt them down. And that means you can have yourself a lovely bit of PvP going on. People love that shit. Who doesn't mm. like killing each other? It's loads of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, often you'll find that some sessions, uh, particularly when you're learning the rules, are let's just get our cartridges and beat each other up and see what happens. And people love that. They're like, yeah, stop, die. <laughs> uh, and that's yeah. good because you're there to have fun. So uh, communication, talking, and then don't try to tell them that what they're doing is wrong. Instead, try to show them how it works in your game and how that may not, the thing that they've created, work compatibly. But there's no reason that you can't incorporate it and make it cool. Yeah. Uh Grommerdal, yes, Foundry is an excellent way to play Wolfrup. Uh there is a wonderful gentleman uh whose name escapes me at the moment who is a passionate fan of Wolfrup who has been like Mooman. Uh yes, Mooman. He has been migrating everything on there. His he does an insanely phenomenal job. Um so yeah, absolutely. I would recommend it. I will um, say though, utterly useless for my game because I've just rewritten the entire game. <laughs> yeah so do do keep that in mind um <laughs> but uh foundry is a great system uh it also it um it it can be a little intimidating at first but it's really it's not as hard as it looks like it is and once you get a hang of it it really gives you a lot of nice tools in your tool shed uh for online it games does. for people that you just can't meet with in person so that's really nice um so i so and uh to kind of uh bounce off what andy was saying because i've i've actually played through a couple of evil campaigns um like i have a campaign that's very near and dear to my heart that i was a player in that a friend of mine ran where we were all uh we were playing a chaos campaign where uh like i think i played a nurgle bray shaman um beast man and then we had like we had a dark elf, we had a dark elf witch elf a chaos dwarf um, wow. demon smith and like uh two other chaos uh cultists i think one ended up being coordinate one was undivided and it was interesting like uh we 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 were like evil but we had objectives like there are things we were trying to do and because and we were outcasts from society so instead of like going into towns we were trying we were avoiding towns we were like making our way north to get up to a chaos thing and one of the things that rgm did really well for us is because we were the bad guys we were dealing with a lot of other bad guys who were a lot bigger and scarier than us, yeah. um, like massive armies and powerful warlords and greater demons and stuff. So while we were evil, it was a lot of the way we defined evil in our campaign was that we were all working against each other while working towards a mutual goal. We were yeah. trying to help get a like a, a warlord for a big campaign into the South. But the question was, who was going to lead it? And we all had our different 
little cagey allegiances. You know, one of us, you know, I was Nurgly, so I, I wanted Nurg uh, have a Nurgle warlord to try and twist in Nurgle's favor, whereas we had a Cornate person who didn't want any kind of sorcerer to lead the campaign. And we were dealing with the Siege Cult and all this other stuff. And so it, like, obviously it's going to be different everything, but for us, a lot of the fun of the evil was that it was almost purely PvP as far as political machinations went. And the last session was hilarious because we all killed each other in the end. Like, yeah, literally, indeed. <laughs> Everybody but one player died in the last session, and it was all from us find all of those plans coming to fruition, and it was hysterical. Yeah, um, uh, I've written an adventure. So I've written an adventure which sort of does that by design. Way back in the day, in fact, I was. It should be up somewhere. I'll just go double check it. Um, way back in the day in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Second Edition, uh, there was a book called Night's Dark's Masters, which was all about vampires. Yeah. Mm, um, and I wrote an adventure to support that book uh, when we were going around conventions with it. And it was an adventure that was quite unlike pretty much any other adventure at that time. Because most adventures generally are, uh, here's your PCs, particularly if they're uh, convention adventures, which is what this one was. Here's your PCs. You've got a job to go do. Go do your job. Here's a big fight. The end. Now, there's obviously all manner of versions around that, but mostly it's here's your character. Go engage with a bunch of um, set pieces and you hit the end. This adventure instead um, randomized everything. There were six characters, but they all had random missions and they all had random assigns. And each one of these missions were like one of them was a vampire's thrall. One of them was a werewolf. One of them was... <laughs> Cut no. a long story short, they all had their own individual goals, and all of the goals were designed to go off at the end of the campaign. And it was the end of the adventure, which was about a four-hour adventure. And uh, it, it always meant that the party got together, they were all about, ooh, and then boom, at the end. And the most fun bit about that was not just the PvP and everyone fighting against each other and the betrayals and the excitement that came from that. As everyone went, you're a what?! I'm horrible. Let's go. <laughs> Which is super fun. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't just that. I didn't know as the person running it who was what. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, yeah. And that's super exciting. I have no idea who each individual. Um, that sounds like almost like, like just a really good self contained board game. <laughs> yeah, it's so much fun as a GM. I played that adventure because it was designed to be an adventure that I could play tens of times and not get bored. Because if you were playing the same adventure again and again and again, boring um but i ended up playing this one at games day we're talking before warhammer fest um so at games day so there's like ten thousand gamers there largely to play warhammer and 40k at that point with little miniatures rather than role-playing but um the adventure was so over the top and awesome that we had a crowd of a couple of hundreds sitting around watching us as i was standing up so that i could be heard by everyone chatting away about all the craziness Andy, and I'll then critical role back before you should have monetized it you, you... yeah you know i should have ages ago go watch low hammering but i should have done that ages ago but uh, that was all getting called out and then as one of them uh one of them reveals what they are and they're um actually they're trying to rescue the uh daughter of a local morian uh chap um and one of them is actually the the partner of this person and reveals that then the other one goes i'm actually there to kill them and away they go and the crowds are laughing because it's actually hilarious um other people are jumping in and um role play doesn't just need to be the standard stuff is basically where it's going and to sum up all of that that was a points-based game in that everything that you did through the course of the adventure gave you points 
If you survived, you got so many points. If you completed your mission, you got so many points. If you didn't lose wounds, you got so many points. And they were totted up at the end, and one person won the scenario and got a free book, which was ooh, super cool. Um, which meant there was, there was real... Co- yeah, there were stakes. stakes. <laughs> so they didn't want to reveal their secrets too early because they might die early. Um, mm. Because they were, because some of them were proper bad guys, and some of them were proper good guys, um, and they were all meant to be good guys. And so no one, like a Cylon, wanted to reveal that they were a Cylon until the very, very end. So hopefully they'd get their missions off. But even if you died, some of them had special points for if you die, you get plus five points because you sacrificed yourself in a noble fashion or something. And it was Mm. just super, super fun. Um, And I bring all of that up just to say that when you're GMing or creating adventures, you do not need to be beholden by what everybody expects an adventure to be. Yeah. um, And uh, I mean, just kind of bouncing off that of... um... First of all, if you're out there and you're like, wow, these sound really fun. I'd love to do something like that with Warhammer. Honestly, the best thing I can always recommend because it's so even just reading through it because it's so funny and can get ideas in your head. Go read Children of the Horned Rat from second edition on how to play a saving campaign. Those rules are hilarious. It is the most goofy campaign system that is purely (laughs) like literally it's like every session. Your goal is to backstab the other players as many times as possible without dying. It's hilarious um because the like, important uh, part there though is the without dying <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah you have to get the favor of the horned rat but you have to be yeah, alive exactly. to, you have to be alive to use it <laughs> mm-hmm. but um um you know to expand on what andy says which i think is really good advice for when you're working with players is a lot of times you'll get a player that like wants to be the bad guy or a very mm-hmm. or as a kind of bouncing what uh falcon says here an improper good guy um, like uh, things that I've seen that are um, very not unusual in a campaign is you'll have someone being like, oh, I want can I be a dark elf in this like enemy within campaign or can I be a chaos cultist? But I'm just not, you know, maybe you are aligned with uh, them, but more than likely you're from somebody else. And the answer is absolutely. But I think the important, A, the whole thing of, you know, session zero with your GM, especially if you want it to be a secret and B, for GMs, give them something to do. Like, like I think having that idea of, all right, here are your missions. Here are the things you're trying to accomplish rather than them just existing. Because if you're going to be kind of from a different cloth than the other players, having your own secret objectives, I think, is a really core part of that. And I'm not going to spoil who it is, but there's a character in Lawhammer who's kind of along that system. <laughs> of There's a character that's kind of working on secret objectives. Yep. Uh, which is awesome. Um, and um- you learn yeah. that one relatively swiftly if you go watch the episodes. Um, I, I will call out um, the Tales of Altdorf City there for seeing yeah, a rather nasty... Tales of Altdorf, you'll, yeah, you'll be up to speed real quick. Uh, yeah. Well, relatively quick. <laughs> There's a lot of Tales of Altdorf. <laughs> there is. Um, yeah, I am I'm halfway through that character's Tales of Ubersreich, and I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> what is this? What are they doing? <laughs> She proper went off the rails. Yeah, it is. It is super off the rails right now. Uh, I'm really yeah, excited yeah. how it's going to end up. Um, that's what I'm going to be watching when I get lunch today. Uh, but um, excellent. So uh, another question we have. So this one is great for Andy specifically because mm-hmm. I've answered this question a lot of times, but I'm curious what your answer is because you've had a lot okay. more experience with this. We actually got this from multiple people, which is I want to introduce my friends to Warhammer as a role play yes. setting. But yes. Warhammer is really fucking big 
how do I show them and get them into Warhammer without scaring or overwhelming them? You do not do what most people suggest. Most people suggest something along the lines of, oh, give them a cheat sheet, get them to read through that, get them stuck in, let them go look at wikis and look through... No. Um, <laughs> there is so much Warhammer shit um, that you can very quickly get lost in it and also intimidated by it. What I recommend instead is go super small. And the easiest way, if you're looking at it from the role-playing game perspective, is play a simple adventure that very much does all of the core themes of what Warhammer is in a nice little small snapshot that doesn't require anybody know anything beyond. It's a fantasy world. And there is one adventure... <laughs> Yeah. There's one adventure that does that really neatly. It's called Night of Blood. It's very simple. And the adventure was originally presented in White Dwarf a bajillion years ago. And uh, it got updated for second edition. And we, I updated it. Well, in fact, Lindsay, my wife, who also plays in our game, she updated it for fourth edition. And we put that up for free onto Drive Through RPG. So you can get Night of Blood for free. It's a short adventure. And it strikes to many of the core themes of what Warhammer is. Cultists, demons, uh, beastmen, storms, mutants, ah! um, all manner of fun <laughs> things. Um, like, it's a the nice, very first nice Butcher Field story. Very yeah, first Butcher Field um, story. Yeah. In fact, it's very similar in some respects. It introduces all of that, and all you need to do is have a bunch of peasants walk into that who know nothing. They're out on the road. They don't understand any of the greater Warhammer world at all. They're a bunch of people who've never encountered any of this because they're just normal people, and everybody can play a normal person. So they can get themselves a gently... Uh, handheld experience and by the end of that because the adventure is also pretty freaking cool you can just simply say did you enjoy it the answer is almost always yes and then 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 once they've already got a buy-in you can say well now that we're in would you like to know more about it and if you do i suggest you read this like one page thing that say in the starter set that sums everything up you can then sum up well, anything you want about sigmar or if you want to talk about the basic course <laughs> what, you know, once you give them their first hit, <laughs> He's like, I, give, I give you a little more. <laughs> give them a hit and then <clears throat> gradually introduce more. And that's going to do much more than, right, so we're going to be playing Warhammer. The Warhammer setting is like this, 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 and this. And here's a big sheet that tells you about the main gods, how they work, what society is like, um, yeah. how witch hunters are and all the rest. I mean, that's all cool. And yes, that is all super Warhammer, but it's also intimidating dull as fuck. So I suggest just dropping in the deep end with a nice, simple scenario and then work from there. Yeah, that is excellent. And the other thing is, I think Warhammer in particular can be such a good setting to introduce mm -hmm. people who haven't role-played before or don't have a lot of fantasy experience because it's uniquely... Warhammer is very... It's weirdly very grounded while at the same time absolutely not. But a yeah. lot of the day-to-day -day stuff is very grounded. It's not like uh, where, like, D&D, &D, you're going to be encountering all these weird races. And, like, there's, like, magic is very present a lot of the time and all this mm -hmm. stuff. Like, Warhammer, you know, there are people that live in the Warhammer world that canonically go their entire lives without ever seeing any magic. Um, yeah. And, like, or they, and they're like, they, they're like, I'm a peasant and I live in a village. And I guess we, you know, they just got lucky and they deal with a couple of little issues, but they just, they live normal lives and die. Uh, it's yeah. a little, you know, we don't hear about those stories because they're not terribly interesting, but like it, 
it is a universe that can be very easy to introduce people with because you can kind of ramp up the level yeah. of fantasy of okay you're basically, yeah it's like this is a pseudo medieval renaissance whatever uh setting but there's orcs or but there's and it's poly and it's polytheistic so there's lots of gods um so rather than just looking at it like in the real world where you've got largely if you're speaking in the west our primary religion um it has different forms but there's one main religion where here we've got a polytheistic society you can almost say what happens if you were playing in history but you had magic and lots of gods that's warhammer let's go yeah um, and, and that's that's literally... more than enough to work with and the other thing, my favorite question whenever I'm introducing someone to Warhammer, I always ask them either what is your favorite fantasy creature or what is your favorite like historical setting if they've seen someone that's very keen on that kind of thing. Because there is a there is a corresponding element in Warhammer somewhere. <laughs> we all know that Warhammer was based upon literally everything that they had miniatures for. Let's throw it together and away we go. And everything they had miniatures for were all the historical stuff, all the fantasy stuff, all the different various and licensed stuff that they pulled together just dropped into one setting and then made sense over the course of, in some cases, decades, in some cases, almost immediately. It's um, good times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that's that is a that's definitely a perfect description but um how to introduce if they are interested more in elves or dwarfs uh well i i think starting mm. it from the human perspective is always good but once you get there if the, then you can open up that idea kind of like what andy said of do you kind of like the universe so far and they go well are there any elves or dwarves and you go yes and then you can kind of expand into that um yeah especially um, this is uh they're very approachable elves and dwarfs because they're very heavily inspired by other elves and dwarfs. Yeah. Um, I would add that this is um, a very common issue for people who are wandering into Warhammer for the first time. Um, it's the classic, I want to be an elf, um, or uh, I love dwarves, I want to be a dwarf. They're there, I want to play them. And there's often resistance to this from many GMs because... Um, they're aware that if you're playing Warhammer versions of these, it's actually pretty hard. It's not an easy thing to do because yeah. Warhammer elves are not like humans and Warhammer dwarves are not really like humans either. They've got a very different society. Um, they've got a whole variety of things that make their communities and their cultures very different. But really, if you're just playing around to introduce folk, it doesn't matter if people don't do it right. You're just having fun. So you can have fun, mess around with it and say, well, this is what the Warhammer version of them is like. Do you, if you want to keep on going, how about we incorporate parts of that? So don't don't try and make everybody correct to begin with. Yeah, it Literally doesn't have to be canon. Mistakes. It doesn't have to exactly. be canon. Make mistakes. Do it your own way. If you want to have a lizardman in your party, freaking go for it. I mean, just, <laughs> just take a look at what um, Warhammer Quest did as it slowly but surely changed over the course of its iterations. To begin with, it was largely, yeah. Here we are, Warhammer Quest. It's all humans, maybe an elf and a dwarf, and fuck it, we're going to have a Chaos Warrior. Woohoo! Okay, we now have a Chaos Warrior PC. Let's go! Um, and then it just developed on further, and then there was Dark Elves and Ogres and all the rest of it. And that is what people who look at Warhammer from the outside see as the first steps into it. So if you immediately then say, no, you can only play a human, all you're going to do is aggravate and upset. And there's no reason to do mm -hmm. that. Um, just get stuck in, play around with the things, and then turn them towards the Warhammer setting that you enjoy playing or you want to present. And it might end up being 
a dark elf, a Nurgle champion, a Kornik person, or whatever, all piling together towards their own nefarious ends. And that's that's super cool. Yeah, and uh, I think a misconception... There's misconception and advice to how to deal with it. I think a lot of the problems that... Um, uh, even ex an experienced GM could run into if they're not careful about it is a new person coming in saying, Oh, I want to play an elf or a dwarf or whatever. Cause they're more familiar with the D and D system where race doesn't matter a lot. Um, yeah. like it, it's a small modifier in D and D. Like if you play a dwarf versus a dragonborn versus a human versus an elf in D and D, those are very small nitpicks. It's much more about flavor. Um, in Warhammer, there's a huge freaking difference between an elf and a human. Yeah. But if you have someone new coming in for the first time, they're like, oh, I really like elves and I want to play one. They're, you do not have to look at them and go, oh, well, an elf is like super crazy hard and yada, yada, yada. And you have to deal with like this societal issue and your stats are crazy, whatever. There's nothing wrong with being like, okay, uh, we're not going to do exactly what the book says an elf is to start. I'm going to have you like roll up a human and we're going to work on the role play aspects of being an elf. And then maybe later on when we get off a one shot or whatever, we can then step into playing a full on elf and see if you still like that experience and take it like bit by bit. Um, because I've, I've seen situations where someone is like, I want to play X and the GM will just say no. And it's like, you don't want to say no. You want to find a way to make it work. Um, I say no all the time though. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that's, I'm a dick. sorry. I should I should rephrase that. You should say no plenty of times as a GM. It's totally fine to say no. If someone goes up to you and they say, "I want to play this," and you look at your setting and go, "That's not going to work," you could say no. But let's work together and see why do you want to play that. Maybe we can find something within the system that I'm going to be running where you will be happy. Um, yeah, I do I'll, think it's important I'll, for GMs to say no. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I'll give a I'll give a clean example of that. Um, I'm in a somewhat unique position in the game that we're running just now. Um, this is my oh my god, I've got so much work on, or I've been so ill, I need some stress relief. I'm streaming a game. Oh my god, it's online. What am I even doing? That game, the law hammering one. Um, but it's unique because I'm literally creating the rules that we need. I'm literally building up a completely different version of the Warhammer world using the rules that we're building. And I did that because the core set of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4 was designed to be, it's a legacy game. It was designed to be reflective of what came before it. And when I passed that all over, another developer changed parts of it into something different. Um, and we had long discussions about how to do that and it manifested in a variety of different ways. But it's fair to say the final result was not super fast at the table. And I wanted for a streamed game, super fast, at the table and we were going to be playing face to face we're not going to be playing with any assists from say for example a tabletop program or anything else we're just rolling dice and playing at the table so i rewrote it from the top right down to the bottom and that means that you also have conversations with your players about what they want to play how that's going to build and inevitably sometimes what i build is not necessarily what they expected it to be so that turns into a different set of discussions on our yes ands or no's and I think the rule should do this. Someone else thinks the rule should do something else. Um, and working together is, broadly speaking, the best way to resolve all of that. And they, they, I mean, it all falls back to the same thing every time. Whenever you have a disagreement with people, disagreements are cool because that means other people have cool ideas. And there's mm. no reason to disagree. Don't see disagreement as a bad thing. See it as, oh, there's something to discuss. So how do we get that out? But the big part is you freaking discuss it. If you disagree, you bring it up. And the people who are on the disagreeings on the other sides discuss it out and you all come to an answer that you're 
all happy with. And again, I cannot recommend enough that this never happens at the table, ever. Um, yeah. Ever. Yeah. This happens after sessions are done, where you're having your chill out, you're giving out XP, or whatever it is that you're doing at your individual games. You can sit down, and it's often a good idea as a GM at the end to say, is there anything that people would rather turn out differently? Was there things that you weren't happy with? Ask them for that. People don't like ever saying that they didn't like a thing. People are, generally speaking, nice. Most are, anyway. Um, and it takes a lot of antagonism before someone will go, actually, I'm not too happy about a thing. Uh, help. So you're better just asking directly. Was there anything that didn't work? Bring it up. Let's see if we can fix that for next time to ensure it doesn't happen again. Was something too confusing? Was something unsure? Was there something that uh, wasn't too cool? Have spaces open for that in Discord or in chat areas where they can just communicate directly and say, this thing, what the fuck? I wasn't mm. happy about this. So that you can then sit down and resolve it. So by the time the next session comes around, everybody's sitting on, again, the same page again. And if there are outstanding issues that have yet to be resolved, everybody knows what they are. Um, and nobody brings them up at the table again because they know that they're going to be fixed at some point soon. So, yeah, communication, communication, communication. You may have said that before, but as a GM... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of the... I, if I could have a rainbow come across the screen, <laughs> it would say communication. Communication, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that that is it. It will save your bacon every time because the the last thing you want is for an issue to blow up on the table in the middle of a thing, because then it turns into an us versus them situation, which is just yeah. always bad. Um, because you have to remember, as the GM, which I've seen GMs that fall for this, um, it is not GM versus the players. <laughs> you are supposed to be is collaborative storytelling. It is not. Unless, unless you're just a very particular group of people that really, really <laughs> like butting heads, uh, generally speaking, it is not supposed to be you versus them. It is you working together with them to tell an awesome story, um, yeah. which is why, like, that's why as a GM, it is hilarious when it's like, ah, oh, shit, that bad guy did really bad and <laughs> just died when I was hoping they'd be better. But it should <laughs> never be, oh, I'm legitimately angry at my party for, like, beating the, the bad guy. Yeah, that um, makes no sense at all, really. Yeah. Um, if you think of it from the greater scheme of things, if you're the GM, in the vast majority of games, you play the world. Everything. Every last detail in that world is yours. And that means sometimes you are playing bad guys who are directly against the party. But you are also playing perhaps allies or henchmen or people who go with them who are their friends and who are working with them. The problem with the whole GM versus party thing generally spawns from groups that were just, say, dungeon bashing, where the GM, all they were really doing was presenting bad guy after trap after bad guy after trap, and that's their job. And it really does turn into an us versus the individual. And you almost can't help but get that sense of frustration when things don't work, because the only thing that the GM is controlling are these things. And it's less about the story, and it's more about... Uh, working your way through a bunch of puzzles that the GM is presenting and trying to trick, in some respects, the party with. And I can see where that comes from, but in a game like Warhammer, for example, which is a far broader and generally more complicated game, which very rarely has nothing but a simple dungeon bash, um, to, be, to create that sense of us versus them is actually hard. Because mm. the vast majority of the NPCs you're playing all have their own individual motivations. Many of them who are friends or allies or enemies. 
Um, and it's your job to try and build the coolest story using all of those. And it, that provides a certain level of distance between the NPCs you're playing and uh, the that us versus them mentality, which can build in other games. But it's it's an understandable situation that arrives at, but if you, as a GM, feel that that's where you're sitting, I would suggest sitting down and going, are you cool with that? Because if you are, great, keep on playing. But if you're not, think about how you got into that place, why the players think the way they think, why you think the way you think, and then possibly talking it out for, to ensure you get the best end result. Yeah, uh, and yes, Hawk, a perfect example is when y'all y'all killed my vampire in two hits. Yes, that is a... <laughs> I, was, I was so... I spent, what, like, I think I spent 30 minutes adjusting her profile. Thus, uh, Andy, the, the slaughter is Spittlefeld vampire. Uh, ah, oh, I, I really I, wish I'd made that one better. Uh, B and I spent an I even buffed her a little it. bit. I gave her like the undead rat swarms and stuff. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. she literally fumble rolled on her first attack, and the party yeah. just like Warhammer. <laughs> she just <Yeah>. died. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. No, <laughs> she her dodge stat was so high, but she just would not roll like less than a ninety. It happens. Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> and uh, Sir Sotek points out. It's true to lore too. First time Gotrek and Felix met, Thankful, Bone Ripper got one shot. <laughs> like, totally. <laughs> I think I think uh, that book is so brilliantly written, Skaven Slayer. There's even, they there's so much build up to Bone Ripper, and you're like, oh, I can't wait for Bone Ripper to fight Gotrek, and Gotrek literally kills him in one hit. <laughs> I'm not saying that Bone Ripper's be in my streams, but Mm. The question is <laughs> now. The real question is which bone ripper is it? And <laughs> which it is. The, yeah, which which of the thirteen bone rippers? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so um, uh, we got some other questions that people submitted in advance. Uh, one that uh, we got from uh, Scythe Petals is Hi, Scythe Petals. What advice would so this seems to be Wolfrip specific? Um, yeah, yeah. And it would be, what would be your advice on how and when to homebrew things like spells and miracles? Okay, so um, I'm going to start with an admittance. All of mine are. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to be 100% honest as an opening. All of mine are. Um, and all of mine are because the core system that's inside Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay wasn't fast enough for my table. And I wanted something that was slicker and quicker for what we were using with our maps, because we were working on maps with squares. And I wanted something that very quickly could be reflected on that and also had role play implications if they were used outside of the map environment. So I'm going to open with that. And then I'm going to retract hard um, and, <laughs> um, and say it, this is a question that is really down to the individual GMs and their own confidence, both in terms of building rules, understanding and understanding the world. Um, I am a constant tinkerer, personally. Um, when Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2 came out, I had already written my own version of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 1. Um, to replace everything that came before from my own version of second edition. When Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 3 came out, I had completely rebuilt second edition into something different. 
Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4 came out. I'd obviously built that. I built that game. And then I rebuilt it entirely for my own game. So I tinker heavily. I'm a strong believer in it to ensure that whatever type of world that you're creating has enough support. For example, my version of the College of Magic is a larger, grander affair than is often suggested inside many of the uh, uh, books. It's a, it's a mixture of everything. Um, but each one of the peaks is used as the standard that I use my colleges for. Um, to represent the Bright College, for example, because we have a Bright Wizard in our game, I need at least 150 spells, at least, um, that do a variety of different things, working across a variety of careers. The official books are never going to match what I want, so I will add more. If your game needs more, go for it. But I will now add my word of warning, my retraction, my and that's that... <laughs> Um, that's that it, it is very easy to get the balancing wrong. So easy, in fact, that people who write the books do it wrong. I'll give an example of that. Um, when I put the core system in place for the roleplay book, a bunch of other writers came in and said, here's the stuff that we'd like to add to it. And they were all massively out. And I don't just mean a bit out. Um, their casting numbers were all over the place. The things that they could do were all over the place. Their understanding of um, how many successes could be rolled and the success level that could be rolled on individual tests over the course of turns, completely out. Their awareness of what a character who had been playing for, say, six months could do was so far removed from the numbers that they were offering that I didn't just have to rewrite it all. I basically would have to write it again from scratch. Um, and that's something that um, most players, when they're doing their homebrews, don't quite get. They homebrew for what they have at the moment, which is cool. But they find themselves almost digging holes of problems for the future when they get a... If you play in a single campaign with a wizard for about a year, you're going to find that all those spells that you've built might now be way more powerful than you originally realized or just useless because you just didn't build them right. Um, so what I would recommend if you are homebrewing or building any of your own is uh, properly build yourself some characters um, that are at mid XP. So we're talking a couple of thousand XP. Again, Warhammer specific um, to um, a little bit more experienced around about the six to eight K area. Build yourself a 15 K XP um, uh, NPC and try that out. And then look at the casting numbers that they can build on average. Look at their numbers, build it up and realize what you're actually building for. It's a little bit of time, but if you're willing to spend time building your own rules, you're going to be willing to spend time to build a few NPCs. It's not too much more. Um, I'll give a single example of the sort of NPCs in my game. Um, the most recent uh, episode has an NPC that's popped in that anyone who's played the enemy with him will already know from the very beginning, a character called Dr. Flaster. I just built up my own version of Dr. Flaster. She's a tiny minor NPC that nobody really pays that much attention to because mm. she was only dropped in to get somebody some healing if they required it after the first encounter. Now, I've built that NPC up and turned it into something quite different. My version of her has 25k XP and she's still not that good. <laughs> in the greater scheme of what I see as powerful, experienced, capable PCs, she is not that good. So, for example, if I was building, say, let's just say a classic uh, wizard at the colleges, someone who has been a, a Lord Magister for like the last 10, 15 years, they'd have someone in the region of about 35k XP. Mm. And that's not the <clears throat> patriarch. That's not someone who is at the peak of the game. This is someone who's near the top, but about 35k XP for the top tier ones. Um, and 
that is what I was building with my spell numbers and making sure that everything worked. Those people who are going to be casting and using those spells at a later date too. So I know this is a long way around to say, be careful. Because <laughs> yeah. ultimately that's what it sums up as, be careful. But if you're going to be playing the rules that are written at the current moment and you intend to play it over a long-term campaign, you need to ensure that you don't end up with a bunch of PCs because they've just got standard XP that so massively outrank the spells you've built that they can just throw them out 19 to the dozen, wiping out everything around them because you made a couple of early mistakes. Now, my last piece of advice on that is, whenever you add something, add one caveat and it's no longer an issue. And that is, these are experimental. I have no idea whether they work or not. Let's run with it and we'll go back to it in a few months' time. We'll go back to it a few months after that. And then you can just keep on updating them as you realize you've screwed up making the rules and your maths doesn't quite work. And that pretty much resolves most of it. And with that in mind, I strongly recommend it because then you can build a setting that matches your own expectations. Wow. Yeah. All right. That's, that's solid. <laughs> yeah. That was quite a lot on a relatively simple question. Yeah. So, uh, okay. He has a more complicated question for you. Um, same person battles. Okay, so a follow-up, more complicated question of that is: How would you advise uh, building races or factions that do not have any supplement support, such as okay. a Bretonian, a Kislevite, a Cathayan, etc.? This is much easier actually, because um, I do it frequently. Um, so uh, first, when it comes to the uh, word race and species, I'm particularly precise with it. Races, different races within an individual species. Species are different species. Elves and dwarves are different species. And they have their own individual races, if you're going to use the word in that particular fashion. Although they often have their own words instead of race that is used um, within them. Um, I'll call that out for uh, early, just in case I say something and you're like, what the frick is he talking about <laughs> um yeah, you're, you're just good. make sure it's nice and clear you're, you're, but i do, good, do yeah yeah i use species quite separately um so when you're building them um uh remember that you're building yourself a pc race which means that um, our stats should not be reflective of necessarily the warhammer stats which is often where people go they should be uh based upon uh a comparison to the basic human stats which start at 30. Do not think that 30 is an average human. It is not. It is an average starting human. An average human is often around about 50, 40, 50, somewhere around that area. Once you've added a couple of stats on and all the rest, a few careers, they build up fast. But some stats will be 30. They're fluctuating. Each time you build yourself a species, look at the difference between them, pop them in, add the necessary talents for them, make sure that they have exactly the same number of talent options and skill options as are presented inside the core rulebook. So if there's 15 different skills that you can get as your basic culture, add a list of 15 skills that best represents that individual species or culture. If you want to see an example of that in practice over on my blog on the Lawhammering blog, which I can probably pull up, it's on Patreon. I'll do a quick tap. Sorry for tapping for those of you who are listening. I'll quickly uh, pull that up. Over on that blog, I've got, I think, the first in there somewhere, uh, the first rewrite of the cultural rules and i do all of the empire in that so sterling westerland all the rest of it um they're all popped in there let me just control b and that one down into the chat assuming that i'm allowed to if i'm yes. not apologize no, you, you, you that 
Excellent. Um, so it's in there somewhere. Just write character creation rules. It'll probably pop up in there. And it'll give you an example of um, uh, I, stats and how many talents there should be and how you can redistribute them. You do that. The big, big hard bit is something new. So this is when you're looking at, say, for example, a species that is quite different to something that's in the core book. Let's say Dark elves? No, not so different, at least at the basic core. Uh, I mean, let's say, but let's say, say someone's like, I want to see a Zoat. Yeah, Zoat. That's tougher. <laughs> um, uh, or if, uh, indeed, any of the various creatures, they're much tougher as a starting point. But generally, all you need to do is go read the background and every single last bit that says, and they do this, which is different to humans, you go, that needs a talent. Mm. That's it. Um, uh, I've done a couple of things different for the Lowhammer version of Warhammer to the standard one. I'll give a single example of that builds into everything else, and that's Acute Senses. Now, Acute Senses is one of the talents in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. It allows you to have super-enhanced one sense. So, for example, everyone expects elves to have super-enhanced vision, for example, or hearing or something. And in the core rulebook, it's got Acute Senses, like Sight or whatever, for the elves. Um, I've Sort of ditched that um, in my most recent iteration. Instead, turn acute senses to for your species. Um, so, for example, if you have acute sense sight and you're an elf, that means you see better for an elf than other elves. Oh, um, interesting. And, um, it makes a complete difference for how you do it. It means that I can now no longer, I don't have to worry about saying, well, my elf is weirdly deaf when elves have better hearing than human. What the hell's going on here? Um, because they don't have acute sense hearing. Um, um, and that is broadly speaking something you can do when you're building your own species stop building it from a human centric perspective um, everything is comparison to a human and instead build the stuff that they have that makes them unique what makes dwarves unique what makes elves unique and then work on that instead um, I'm going to be giving lots of examples of that online within the next so many weeks because I'm going to be putting up all my elf rules relatively soon. And they are so starkly different to the core book um, that I think that you might get quite a lot out of that. So I would suggest instead, watch for a future blog post. It's coming soon to a blog near you. <laughs> yeah, and that, that is something uh, me and Andy have talked a lot about. That One of, one of the weaknesses of Wolfric 4th Edition is that it's, it's very human-focused very human centric um it doesn't give as much information as it probably should on a lot of the other races and it doesn't necessarily do as good of a job as it could of um making those races feel what you would expect them to feel like uh in warhammer fantasy um like it focuses a little bit too much on like starting stats and then but like the talents like andy says the talents are all spoken about from a very human perspective they are. um which is a can it, not only is it a strong weakness, but it really limits those talents, especially if they're like a one take only talent. You know, you yeah. can't stack acute sense sight. Um, but and it, it kind of puts a lot of well, in a raw, uh, and so there, there's a and, and that's something that, like, as a GM, you either need to do what like Andy's done and do like kind of a lot of rewrites, or you need to really keep that in mind as you're talking to your players about how their character interacts, of like, yeah when like when i we have an elf in uh, my enemy within party uh dorth andrew who is a uh, uh a sea elf from marienburg and like i will like even if his checks are pretty much the same as the other players or like there are times i won't even have him check because i know 
in my head, like, it's like, oh, well, you're an elf. So you get this experience even, and the humans get this experience, but I'm doing right. that instead of having that math in the game, like Andy's doing, I'm just kind of doing it in my head. Um, in fact, I'm doing that also, actually, to, to mm. be 100%. I think that is the correct way of doing it. Um, instead of applying talents and adding maths and all the rest, you simply have under elves. Elves work like this. So that means that humans work like this. They're not the standard. It's just where they hear, where they see. <laughs> uh, my halflings, for example, can see into a different spectrum than my humans. My dwarves also see into a different spectrum than my humans. That doesn't mean that they're all compared to humans, it's just they all have different baselines. And my elves have of all the broadest. Um, and that's something that I think for your own games is certainly worthwhile doing. The core rule book, I just summarized that all up with a single talent, which is swift and it's easy, and it's just acute senses. Um, and that will do for most. Um, it doesn't do for me because I like my elves to be elves, not humans with pointy ears. <laughs> yeah, which is what you know they should be like. If yeah, otherwise, well, otherwise just use humans. <laughs> um, yeah, we had a discussion of this when we were building up the archives. Um, so the archives books for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay—that's a bunch of expansions with lots of just random bits slapped together in one book. It's like a compendium of extra stuff. Um, and there were some ogre rules dropped in there, which were based on my ogre rules from Second Edition. There was some halfling rules that were dropped in there as well, which was written by Andy Leesk, actually, who's on uh, on mm. our stream. Um, and uh, the general gist of both of those was to just run with the rules as presented in core, not to add any extra complication or simplification, not to simplify it back. Although that there was an intent to do so and a desire to do so, um, largely because we didn't want to invalidate the presentation that was inside the core rulebook, but there was always an intention around about archives three. But I'd moved on long beyond that point. Um, I'd moved on by then, but to sit down and just do a big. This is what each of the species are like, and you know what? They're not the same. They're just not. And if you want to try and bring that into your game, this is a really good way of doing it to try and show how their experiences, their worldviews are so very different. Yeah, and if you want uh, some excellent details on that, there are a Lorebeard episode. I did one with uh, Lindsay uh, about elves. That's awesome. And we also had Andy Luscon about halflings and some other things. Mm -hmm. So check those out for more details. Okay, yeah, so they're all right. <laughs> they're, you know, they're not, they're not as they're good right. as Andy, but... <laughs> Uh, so um, I've got a really good uh, question here from Scythe Petals. So he asks, uh, so considering that faith is one of the big three of Warhammer, and I think he's referring to the classic quote of faith, steel, and gunpowder, um, how would you recommend using the good, quote-unquote, good deities to make, to so it feels like they have influence on the world, especially if your party does not have a priest character yet your players are role-playing as particularly religious. How can you make it where it feels like the gods, not just the chaos gods, actually are having an influence on the world and the chaos gods aren't just having all the fun? Right, so um, my first recommendation is one that might sound counterintuitive, but I think is worth stating. And it's something we did for Lawhammering as well. And that's actually limit the amount of divine activity that there is. Now, in my game, there's a reason for it that's in the background and the version of the Warhammer world we're presenting. But it's got a really good knock-on effect. And that's when it arrives, it's special. So when it actually hits the center of play in whichever manifestation it has, everybody goes, Ooh, the gods have manifested amongst us and all the rest of it, which is super fun. 
right, my second um, recommendation is to do something that was intended to go into archives one, actually. It was an article that was going to be written by Lindsay um, and B was working on parts of it as well. And that is to broaden the pre the pre skill. The pre skill, um, uh, I would recommend dropping that to a basic skill. And I would mm. use that for people to visit the various cults, the various um, temples, and to pray, to make offerings, make sure this is played up and give it actual potential benefits that the players themselves can secure. So, for example, if they wanted to go into war and they pop over to one of those great fortress, let's say, temples of Ulrich, and they pour some beer um, around the base of the shrine, make some sort of offering, they do themselves a base prey test, and they potentially gain some sort of benefit. Now, Warhammer Quest did this really well. It's an old game from quite some time ago, and I'm talking about the 1990s version of it. I'm not talking about the Warhammer Quest that was made for Age of Sigmar later. Um, and it had a bunch of places that you could visit that were randomized um, mm. in some places or ones that you could just go to and you'd rolled on a table and you got a potential benefit for your next adventure. Those rules were uplifted and dropped into the Endeavor rules for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And they were sort of reiterated there, but they were supposed to be a very small part of a far larger starting point. And all of the cults should have their own Endeavor basically dropped in for making offerings, for going over and getting yourself some form of benefit for visiting those places. Whenever your human character wants to do something, there is almost certainly a god related to that. They're in a polytheistic society. They would almost certainly go and make some offerings if it's an important event. They would be going, not just the religious characters, not just that I'm the priest of Sigmar, I'm going to pray at the temple. Everybody goes to Throng mm. on Festag. They all go to the Temple of Sigmar. They're all praying. They're all doing it. And enforcing that as a part of it which goes on to my third recommendation it's you you're the one that will make this happen by telling the stories that make it clear track the week when Thestag comes around have all the shops shut down everyone's trooping towards the temples of sigmar everybody's doing something on the Thestag day they're getting preached at everybody's expecting everyone else to go particularly if you're in reichland it's a completely different atmosphere on the streets. Um, if there's a particular event coming up that's tied to one of the gods, make everybody be popping over to that temple, making offerings, have religious events happen again and again and again and again. There's not a week that goes by that doesn't have some form of festival in one of the villages somewhere to one of the gods. Constantly reinforce that, constantly show how these people are not worshippers of Sigmar. They're not. They're worshippers mm. of the gods. The gods are a part of their life. And this was something that we tried to nail down with the Tome of Salvation back in second edition of um, the game. It was the first real, I think, stab at showing um, that for all we always knew, the Warhammer world was polytheistic. It was a world where there was multiple gods, all of whom had their own spheres and areas of interest. Um it had, even at the second edition point, reached a point where the Empire was seen as being synonymous with Sigmar, with a couple of the other gods being mentioned every once in a while. Mm. And the Tome of Salvation was an attempt to show it's a really big, complicated, polytheistic world, but ultimately that will only be true if you present it that way. If you don't, 
everybody's going to forget it, much like they do in some respects in the modern world, where religion is often seen to be a private thing that's separate from everybody's day-to-day -day lives. Some people are hyper-religious and it informs everything they do, but we're almost in a society nowadays where it's considered rude to discuss these things publicly. So they don't. So religion has sort of faded down, particularly in the West in general. Obviously not for many, and there's many people out there going, what? No, religion, Courtney, that's fine, <laughs> that's cool. I get that. I'm just talking in general, particularly in Europe. Um, and again, there's going to be Europeans out there going, what the? You get what I mean. <laughs> I'm making a general point. Um, and that's not what it's like in the Warhammer world. The gods are real. They just are. Now, whether the gods in your world are real because they are tied to chaos gods, real gods, etheric stuff, Eight demons, whatever you want them to be, it doesn't really matter. They are real. They have real palpable effects. Miracles are real. People who are blessed by the gods are real. A, a basic one, you attack somebody who looks really weak, the gods may indeed bless them on the spot and retaliate. Mm. It's not a safe world. It is dangerous and everybody is constantly living in a state of danger. If you do something that pisses off one of the gods, that god may intervene. And that's something that has often been a course message in some of my games, not this one in particular, where if you do something that clearly is going to annoy one of the gods, stuff happens. Fortune points fail. You fall. You get marked. The cultists of that god start getting annoyed around you because you're marked for one reason or another. The religion is in your hands. Yeah, and kind of to stack on top of that, uh, another thing that's really important to remember is, especially if you're coming from like a Total War background or even the uh, fantasy battle uh, tabletop background, there are a fuck ton of gods in the Empire. It's not just like, it's the, obviously it's not just Sigmar, but it's not even just the big, like the old gods and the new gods. There are tons and tons of local gods and like minor gods um, that are all over the goddamn place. Like almost yep. every river has a god. Every forest yep. has a god. Some trees have gods. Some fields have gods because those people have assigned important things to that. Um, so how present you want to make them is kind of up to how much you want to deal with it. But if you're playing it from like a canonical perspective, like just like if you pick up the enemy within, literally one of the first things you deal with um, when you leave Altdorf is that uh, the boatman is making offerings to Bogan. He's like throwing onions and stuff off the boat to the, the river god to make sure that he doesn't fuck with the barge, <laughs> um, which is important. You don't want to screw over grandfather Bogan or yeah. whatever he's doing uh, if you're passing on his river. It just makes sense. Um, but the thing is, is that, that they're real uh, from a canonical perspective. Now, whether or not you're like, well, is that actually God? Well, you know, that's an interesting discussion. But it is. Uh, but they do act like gods. They do have power. They do expect offerings. They can be pissed off. And there's all this other stuff you have to deal with. So if you're kind of like, oh, I feel like the chaos gods get all the fun and nobody else does, that isn't the way it should be. That's just the way what you've read so far makes it look like. Yeah, I would add one other small bit. Um, don't consider the gods that aren't chaos gods to be good guys. They yeah. are fickle, mercurial. Some of them are just proper mean. Um, and it's not so much you worship them. What you're doing is you're giving them offerings so they do not pay attention to you. Mm. It's, it's quite different to the, oh, I'm praising them and trying to get them to help me. Quite the opposite. You're going to the priest or whomever very much so that they, they can advise you how to avoid the gods' wrath. 
There's a reason one of the core rules for the divine rules in War of Fantasy Roleplay is God's wrath. And it has literally nothing to do with the fact that they're good guys. All the gods are wrathful in one fashion or another. Use those rules for people beyond just priests. Yeah, I don't I don't think there is a single god in Warhammer that I would describe as purely good. Um they all <laughs> they, they all have weird issues. Like even yeah. even even Sigmar. Like Sigmar, I mean he's you could say he's the most especially human Sigmar. Yeah, Sigmar. especially yeah. Uh, but it's like, you know, I, I think a lot of people sometimes get on the idea of like, oh, this is main character God, therefore good. No, yeah. no, no, no. Um, like, you know, it's like even even Shalia, who in if you look at it from a distance, looks purely good. There are a lot of things that should raise your eyebrows about her, um, about like, why does she need supplication in order for people to receive her blessings? Why, you know, if she's truly a goddess of healing and mercy, why is she helping Lots of people instead of just the people that are being placated. You know, she has to be placated to act. Um, gods are not, they're not there to like, you know, in D&D you have, which just kind of pulling an example for people are familiar with, you have gods that are actively like good and they are trying to influence the world to be good. Warhammer gods don't care about that. They care about themselves <laughs> uh, because they have to do things in order to continue to exist. Um, yeah, that, consider them, um, if you're looking at a way to try and imagine how they work in your world, a good starting point is to do the thing that everyone tells you you shouldn't, and that's to anthropomorphize them, actually give them motivation, actually give them something they're going to. Now, normally, I would not recommend doing this, um, because especially in my game, the gods are much more primal, they're much more focused on uh, the on being uh, almost the epitome of a particular thing. But that's by the by. If you're looking to try and build something that has a feeling of those gods are doing something, you've got to give them something to do. And that a good place to start is strictures. But then you've got to remember that you only really get that for about the first 10, 15 gods in the Warhammer world, where there are literally not just scores, but hundreds of buggers all over the place. And whether they are basically major spirits in your world rather than gods, or whether they're effectively something completely different doesn't really matter because it's how the people themselves interact with them they view them as gods yeah and like you know think about what they would want like what what do they want from people how do they yeah. want people to behave in order to placate them and you can kind of inform that on like how you want to treat them and how they'd react to what the party's doing you know if you're wanting to be active with it and you're like oh there's a god of this river who want I, he wants you to catch fish and for every fish you're supposed to throw back its eyes you know, whatever. And the party doesn't do that. Well, how how does he take offense to it? And what is his blah, response? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, so um, there's a lot of things there. Um, yeah, is I that strong, strongly recommend you do all of that shit because it's good fun. Um, okay, so uh, Hawk asks, uh, so, does that mean the Empire is not that different from End? Well, I don't think we have a lot of information necessarily on End yet. And it seems that yeah. End, um, there is some really interesting things about how End might take that to some extremes that the Empire used to be like, but the Empire has much more dominant cults now that are actively stomping out the other smaller gods where they can. Um, end may be avoiding that problem, at least for now. Um, or maybe their gods are significantly nastier if you do not uh behave because maybe they have more interesting mortal servants 
Um, there, who knows? There could be all sorts of reasons, but we also just don't really know anything about end. Yeah, the answer to that is how long is a piece of string? Um, until um, there's some specific definitions put down, you can't be certain. I will say, though, that many writers for Warhammer have not really quite grasped the concept of what a polytheistic world is like. Um, so their version of the Empire is often almost single God-centric, or maybe single God-centric with a couple of others mentioned, and that's it. And that's not just because they don't understand polytheism. It's often because many of the authors have never played Warhammer or read any of the books. They're authors who have been brought in for a Black Library novel. They're given a quick summary of away you go and the editor then tries to resolve any issues that might be outstanding. Um, and that's unfortunate or fortunate, depending on your point of view and depending on the author it had. Um, but it does mean that the polytheism of the empire is often dropped. Now, how would it compare to, say, modern-day India or some equivalent? I think that's a super interesting question because there'd be many parallels. The empire is absolutely nothing like the Holy Roman Empire, which is one of its primary sources in terms of its historical um, setup mm. when you come to its culture and its religion. It's enormously different. It's a proper polytheistic society. And if you view Ind as nothing more than a reflection of, say, for example, India um, at various points in its history, you're going to be left with, well, they look very similar. But as we all know, once something gets Warhammerized, it tends to not just dial it up to 11, it laughs at 11 and goes to 112. Um, and it's quite likely that whatever version of Ind that they build in the end, once it's given proper flesh to its bones, rather than a couple of quotations here, a couple of extra details, it will be everything that you'd expect plus quite a bit more as they build on top of it so the ultimate answer to that will be i imagine it will be quite different come the end yeah and uh and to reiterate just because i saw someone kind of ask a question in chat i'm not saying that every single river and every single tree has a, uh, a god in the empire that's not the case but it's often where there are locals where there are people the gods like they have a veteran's interest in people worshiping them if there's nobody there to worship there might be something there but yeah, yeah. In... i'll go further on that one um all the main rivers do um mm. we wrote that specifically so you're talking like yeah, the, that is the, talked the, about in enemy within i think yeah yeah totally the Dell, the bergen the reich the talabek all of them do all the minor tributaries might have spirits associated with them um they might have things that live within them that could be perceived to be gods by some and maybe worshipped as them by some i think um absolutely spot on that often if there's not folks around they won't go but it's been it was written in for example the total salvation that some gods that were no longer worshipped that no longer came back and found worshippers. Yeah. So there's 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 complicated layers to it all. But in terms of your game, make it work for your game. Yeah, what do, do like. whatever makes you happy. Don't worry about the yeah, specifics. Totally. <laughs> Screw the specifics. I, I can imagine someone right out there's like, how am I gonna handle this? It's like just don't. Just don't. <laughs> if it's too much, just don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, just um, don't worry about it. Just just carry on but, with whatever you think. Yeah, rocks. There are a lot of fun stories there if you want to look into them. Like yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. if so, you want to explore what would it be like if a god who nobody worships does come after people and wants to be worshipped? There are a lot of very scary ways that could be done. <laughs> yeah, um, I think um, uh, Sul is particularly called out in the Tome of Salvation is doing that. That was a god that was wiped out by the cult of Talabek. Um, not Talabek, by the cult of Tal, um, when the Talabek landers went swiping through the Talutans, as they were back then, and wiped out um, all of the Solanders at that point. Sul, the god of the Solanders, was largely gone. 
and that one came back um, and is also related to Salkin, for those of you who know your old gods of law um, mm -hmm. stuff. But another one, Aholt, um, is another god, a god of almost sacrificial fertility and really nasty. That's a god that completely changes because all of her worshippers were wiped out. Um, and she came back vengeful as fuck because of that. So there are examples of gods that have literally no worshippers coming back and doing some pretty horrendous things because of that. And they make for super fun stories um, for individual Warhammer Fantasy roleplay sessions, if you fancy. But equally, you can ignore them all and say, that's just stories. That never happened in my world. That's just things that people say. The truth of it is, the gods are this instead. So... Don't view it in any way as something that pens you in. View it as something that perhaps can excite your imagination as to something that will work well at your table. Yes. All right. So I've got one more. It, it, it's still Warhammer Fantasy specific, but uh, one more kind of GMing based question. And then we'll kind of open the floor. to And chat, if y'all have any questions, feel free to just throw them up and I'll ask them if I think they're kind of relevant to the discussion. Um, so someone asks, um, uh, Sun Kyle asks, when dealing with second sight, there are descriptions on how to handle the eight battle lores. How am yeah. I supposed to handle all of the other lores of magic and priests? So like the lore right, of Smash versus the lore of Big Wah and Little Wah, priests, etc. Yeah, yeah, this is easy. Much easier than you think. Now, first one, um, uh, I'm going to open with a regret. I really wish I'd made the site a skill and not a talent because um, that would have been a much easier way of immediately understanding how it works and also within the skill explaining it all out with a little bit more depth. Um, we dropped it as a talent for ease of use and because we had a certain amount of skill slot problems with one of the earlier iterations of the rules. So I'll first immediately start off with uh, the rule book itself could have handled this better. That's number mm. one. Number two, um, don't think of them as the lures. Um, that is a very, very Warhammer Fantasy battle way of viewing it. Um, and it starts to complicate affairs because there are a lot of lores, but not necessarily so many winds of magic behind them. So instead of thinking of them as the overall lores and how each of those lores may manifest in the world, instead think of the winds that are fueling those uh, lores. And typically that will mean the eight winds of magic that everybody knows and loves, possibly dark, dar, and that creeping, almost venom-like, as in Venom the movie, like horrible substance that wanders around being very much black magic, super powerful, super concentrated, and nasty. Yeah, um, like, like a living tar, yeah. Yeah, like a living tar. That's one way of viewing it. There's, But it being magic, it can be viewed in lots of ways. It would be like a big, horrible, oily substance that has managed to coat everything as well. Different ways to view it in different um, perspectives. Um, so that, and dark can be used for all of your chaos lores, all of your nasty magics, your dark magics, and everything else. So you can simplify it down to a single set of descriptions, which are then influenced by the other winds of magic that are prevalent within that type of magic that's coming up. For example, the lore of Nurgle. The lore of Nurgle in its various forms um, draws heavily from multiple winds. For example, the green wind of magic, Gyron. Um, it's Gyron gone out of control um, as everything starts to become diseased and, and cancers grow and all goes horrible as it pops out with pustules and everything else. It's growth uh, uncontrolled anymore, reaching a ripe, horrendous, horrible outcome. But it's still the green wind of magic. 
which makes it mm. a lot easier for you to describe as a GM for those for those of you who've got wizard players. So you don't need to start going, well, I need to figure out how Nurgle manifests. I need to think about how Slanesh manifests. No, they're all using the same wins. It's just these wins are being combined in different ways when you're working on the chaos floors. And because they're being combined, an enormous amount of dars being wrapped up into that as well. That horrible sticky stuff that works through it all. Um, so concentrate less on the lores. Think more about the wins of magic. Simplify it for yourself so you basically have the eight wins. Think how they impact each one of the lores. And this is where if we'd written out the skill, it would have been written out quite clearly in detail. And underneath each lore, it would have said, it uses these wins and this is how it works. Yay! But sadly, <laughs> not, en not enough space. I actually had um, that all written out because I was going to be doing that for the magic book. Um, but the magic book that they released doesn't have any of that in it, sadly. It was largely a college-based version where the magic book that I had planned had all of the chaos lores in it, necromancy, uh, demonology, all the rest of it, all lore. Oh, uh, nice. One. <laughs> yeah, because it, 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 by that point, it was no longer just the right we were dealing with. It's Warhammer, so to speak. So you need all mm. that shit. Yeah. Um, but you also have then, uh, you move up towards high magic when you're uh, taking all the wins and you're combining them into this greater whole. How does that manifest? Now, unless you've got high magic in your game, you don't need to worry about it because it will always collapse into Dar unless there's someone who is capable of doing that. So you can really, if you're looking at trying to explain it all, just use the eight wins in Dar. And then we've got the orcs. Greenskins <laughs> green are their own thing. Um, and they pretty much generate their own magic by their very existence as they pool together and they build up their wah energy for want of a better description and it's almost much more as we move on to the next part divine based than it is magic based but much like the chaos lords it uses the magic rules it doesn't use the divine rules um but it means that if you're presenting it as a player you can present it for as a gm you can present it from both sides the divine side and the magic side and how it represents. And these are horrible, crackling things. Don't worry about the winds of magic at all. Just describe it in any way that you think the greenskins best work within your system. Um, and you're looking at, say, Skaven. They use the existing winds of magic. Now, they also have this divine nature to a lot of it. Um, they have, after all, seers, grey seers. These are people who are representing the horned rat himself, uh, looking into the future and uh, enacting the great plan of the horned rat whatever you may believe that is. But they're still using the Winds of Magic, which means that you can use the same descriptions for them that you use for everything else. It's really, in the greatest scheme of things, only the orcs that break the rules. But we all know the Greenskins break the rules for almost everything anyway, so that's cool. <laughs> um, and, and things like that in the Warhammer world are super important. Um, and by that, I mean have things that break the rules. So that means when the wizard starts getting comfortable seeing these eight wins, them coalescing into Dar and it all going wrong, and then when they see something that doesn't quite match that, it scares them. Yeah. And that's important because in Warhammer, you should always have that fear of the unknown, which is easily lost, particularly by people who know the setting really well. They feel like they understand everything. They feel like they know what sort of danger they're in. It's just a freaking orc. I'll be fine. Um, and finding ways to undermine that and to shock players is an important part of being a GM because it keeps things exciting and interesting. Uh, in Lawhammer, we did that to a degree. The uh, demons were much more powerful than people expected when they were encountered. The, um, even the mutants were more powerful than people expected. They were doing things that people didn't expect, and that caused both the players who were playing to go, what the fuck? But it also caused people <laughs> who were watching the stream People are watching the stream to go, what the fuck's going on yes, here? I've, this I've had this that. demon, what the fuck? 
Yeah, um, I've, I've had that reaction many times watching Lawhammer. It, <laughs> um, and it's and it's an important component of uh, in keeping it exciting and interesting. But that only works if you've got a baseline to work from. So to cut it all back for magic, stick theory, winds and dar, and you've done most of the job. For divine stuff, priests just don't see that shit. They might be able to sense uh, some basic, there's magic in the area, depending on the talent mix, but they see none of it, except for the light wind, because the light wind is absolutely attached through to holiness. Um, they're hierophants, they're priests, the light magic users in particular, and that holy white wind does get detected by your priests. Um, on, on the divine side, you make it entirely, now this is going to sound ridiculous, but mundane, as in the effects that uh, the miracles describe are what happens. There's no magic laced through it. There's nothing. If it's a fireball that comes out the sky, it's a literal freaking fireball coming out of the sky. Um, and anyone with the divine talents will know that that is holy as fuck. Um, but they are not going to say, oh, yes, there's winds of magic laced through that doing X, Y, and Z, because to do that is to utterly diminish what divine magic is within the, to use the term divine magic, within the Warhammer world. It is quite deliberately different to how magic is handled, and it always has been right back to the beginning. Eh, Fantasy Roleplay 1, eh, you could argue there were similar rules, but they were still discreetly different. Yeah, oh, God, we're going to have to do a whole episode on magic. Easy. Um, yeah, but uh, <laughs> so um, there ha there was a, oh God, where is it? There was a, there have, were a couple questions that came in. So, okay, this question, I can't answer it because I'm not familiar enough with D&D. &D. You might not be able mm -hmm. to answer it because if you're not familiar not. enough. So uh, someone, uh, Cash Slaughter, asks, uh, do you have any GM tips for someone playing Warhammer Fantasy using oh, D&D's system? Yeah, th this is an interesting one. Um, uh, this has been asked a few times down through the years, uh, and it's been asked on various forums that I've been involved with. And nowadays, you'd be probably looking at Discord servers or Facebook groups or whatever. Um, and this comes up largely because a lot of people like D&D &D and people want to use D&D &D because that's the game that everybody else plays. So they want to do it. Now, can you do it? The answer is yes, easily. Um, mm. As a good example of this, if you want to see a game that has been adapted for this, I actually recommend doing a small amount of investment and go check out the Lord of the Rings uh, role-playing game. It's called the One Ring. and you've, It's got a D&D &D version as well. Con compare and contrast. They're massively different, but mm. exactly the same game, going towards the same goals with the same feel throughout it. Um, and what they've loosely done is they've taken D&D and they've ported over all the key points from the core rules themselves from the One Ring, which is its own unique role-playing game, and they've adapted them over towards D&D. Now, that means on the Warhammer side, what would that be? You'd be looking for clear rules for corruption. You'd need to add them. You'd need to look for clear rules to represent um, the changeable nature of careers if you wanted to respond to that. It takes a very small tweak to make the potential for multi-classing an equivalent to uh, then move over to D&D. Um, you'd be looking for very clear rules for how the magic represents itself in a slightly different fashion. And you just go through each of the primary, let's say, themes of Warhammer, and you ensure that they're passed over. Fate points. In Warhammer, you are playing someone who literally has a destiny of some sort. Their destiny might be to die under the claws of a rat ogre, having saved someone else <laughs> by their very death. So it's not exactly the most noble of ends, but nevertheless, when you, in Warhammer, you are playing someone 
who has some form of fate for one reason or another. So reflecting that over in D&D and building your own fate point and somehow influence meta currency that allows you to influence what's happening in the world around you. In Warhammer, that's fortune points or an equivalent that allows you to effectively re-roll tests, affect the world around you, um, be lucky. Mm. PCs are lucky. Um, one of the gods is looking after them or they've got faith in destiny for one reason or another. Perhaps it's Zinch himself is using them to bring them to bring about the end of the world. Who knows what it is? It doesn't really matter what it is unless you want to build a reason for that for your own game. So my general tips would be just use the core rules, add in a good smattering of your own homebrews to represent the Warhammer stuff and then just play in that world and you'll find that ultimately when it comes to role-playing, it doesn't actually matter what system you're using. What matters is that everyone around the table is engaged with that setting and having fun with whatever cool shit hits their way. It does mean, though, if you are homebrewing, you've got a lot of work to do for building stats, for various different creatures, for building uh, everything, really. And it's much easier sometimes to take a game that has been specifically designed to represent all of the unique qualities of that setting than it is to use D&D. But I fully represent, uh, not represent, probably I fully accept that many would prefer to play D&D, it's worth a go. Yeah. It's I, up to it, you whether it's going to work. I know it's like I know people have done it. I don't know how they do it, but I know people that have done it. Um, all right, so we've got a question here. I'm curious what your answer is going to be because I bet my answer will be different. Uh, so Kamiya, she asks, how would you go about building an Amazonian ah, priestess? Does Rig have enough lore, or would you simply uh, – pull things from the Norse goddess Frigg. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Um, that would be, I think, a waste of uh, quite a lot of potential. Goddess Frigg has a, a lot more potentially behind it than just simply, let's just make them Norse. Um, if I was doing it, I would probably dial down relatively hard on the old lore because I literally couldn't help myself. I'd be looking to <laughs> represent... I just couldn't. I'd be looking to ensure that we brought a lot of old one um, connections mm. through in it. I'd be, um, I would build up a story for Rig that was far more related to that um, and stood as a potential counterpoint to how many of the uh, Lizardmen tales explain things. Because one of the great joys of the Warhammer world is that every species has got its own opinion and none of them are necessarily correct. Um, the lizardmen are often granted as the, well, they're the ones that saw it, but they've got such a unique view in the world. And it's also mm. a received view. This is a view that was given to them. This isn't a view that's necessarily true per se. So what I would try to do is build up something that made them unique, fascinating, interesting. It mirrored the tales of the lizardmen with which they are so very closely tied, but it did not necessarily reflect them. It directly, it gave a slightly different view, a twist, something new, something exciting, something that provided a host of new rules that made them unique and interesting to play and wasn't just some rather bad uh, reflection of we want to have kinky Kyosen Amazonian <laughs> girls kicking around in the Amazonian forest because Amazons in the Amazon forest, yes! <laughs> but hey, we came there! Brilliant! Um, that, that, that's bullshit um, and feels very right. eight. Um, and I would, uh, I, I would almost certainly use that to inspire stories to speak to the tales, but I would ground them in a different reality and I would try to make them unique and fascinating. As to what exactly that would be, 
literally until I sat down and wrote it, I wouldn't know. Um, you, for example, give one suggestion which would be to take Rip Frigg. I would be kind of heavily resistant to that, largely because it's almost lazy. I would be looking to look at mm. the entirety of the Warhammer world in that area and build a really good story for why they still exist, how they still exist, how that ties back to all the different versions of their belief systems across the Warhammer world, and then in their unique secluded area, what that makes, uh, how that tells a different tale, so that when people like Lordmaster Sotek comes along and reads it, they go, holy shit! <laughs> if a part of this is true, that means when that uh, that oh, when that lizard man uh, city fell, that means it could have fallen because of this and not that. And they mm. all say it's this, but it might not have been. It could have been this shit. I think they've got an access to a key to opening a door to a slightly different version of the truth, which may speak to the overall truth in an interesting way. So, without actually answering the question at all. <laughs> <laughs> and saying what I would specifically do, um, the general tone, I think, would be that. And, uh, Camille, what I would recommend is the big... Uh, actually, I agree with pretty much everything Andy said. The big thing about Rig that makes her really fun to explore is that it is a her. One of the things is... All of the old... The Lizardmen don't have a concept of sex and gender. They don't understand it. They literally don't understand it at all. And so the Lizardmen have completely ignored Rig, and she is kind of an outcast because the Lizardmen don't understand what her function was or, and what, cause she is painted as this, like almost like motherly figure of the various races, but to the Lizardmen, that doesn't mean anything. So you need to explore the idea of, okay, is there only one female old one? Why is she so strongly associated with femininity? Cause I bet there's not just one, but why is she the only one that's remembered that way? What did she do so specific? And why was she kind of seemingly outcast from the others? What caused her to kind of set up a, se a separate base on an island near where the other old ones were, but she was off doing her own thing? Supposedly, she had a daughter, Caleb. What's the situation with that? It, are there descendants of the old ones? Uh, if, if so, then what are the Amazons really? Are they human or are they something different? Supposedly, Damn straight they are. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, that's it's like, more fun. <laughs> yeah, supposedly they're all female. If that's true, yeah. how do they continue Why? to exist? Are they mm -hmm. immortal? Have they figured out some other way? The lizardmen spawn. They don't procreate through normal means. Maybe the Amazons do something similar. There's a lot of really interesting ways to explore that. As far as like the priestess system goes, I think Andy would agree in saying that I would not make it a traditional priest. Um, I would probably go more of the shaman route where you're going to take more from like, you're going to be a wizard that has kind of like priestly leanings. Cause like you think of the slon mage priests, they are priests, but they are wizards skink priest. It's a priest, but it's actually a wizard. I would follow that same logic. Um, you know, probably very similar to the lizardmen pull from, uh, I would probably recommend Gur and Gyran being your heavy inspirations to separate a little from the skinks that are more, or, you don't I, think so? I have an alternative. I think I might go heavily into uh, Chamon, Chamon, depending on how you want to play it. Really? Largely, largely because um, for me, I would really want to pull on the old one tech. And, oh yeah, yeah, I yeah, I um, because I'd want to lean heavily into the old that old first edition, well, like third edition, whatever, whatever. But that old feeling for they they're, they're quite different on the technological side, and that really just speaks to bringing in a bit of gold magic. 
um, and allowing them to do, potentially build stuff and create stuff that's quite different to everybody else around them, giving them something unique and exciting. But um, beyond that, no, agree one hundred percent. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold back on their. I would not hold back on their like physicality either. They're surviving. They're thriving in Lustria, which is the most dangerous place on the planet outside the realm of chaos. Snoozy. How? Yeah, <laughs> it was like how how are they doing that? Like yeah, what yeah. do they, you have to think about it? They the lizardmen don't necessarily like them. They con they have conflicts. They don't get along all the time. Why yeah. are they fighting? What are they fighting over? How are they able to trade blows with the lizardmen? How do they survive chaos invasions? How do they survive the Skaven? Like they're not immune to these threats. So what what do they have that's allowed them to hang in there? And if you think about that, you start to go, oh, they must have some really cool shit. Like. Yeah. If you have an island, a single island that is full of old one tech, think of everyone that would want that. Why can't they get it? And that, I think, will help lead you on what could be there. Damn straight. Um, in fact, I can't agree more. Um, the, more that you, <laughs> the more that you look at all of the cool that's around it and all the cool that's been written before, and you then try to make it... Now, this is going to sound stupid for Warhammer, but make it real make it make sense for them hmm. as an individual community, ground it within everything that's around it, not just, oh, the lizardmen are there. Because as, as mentioned, the, the Skaven are also there. There's been demonic attacks. There's been all manner of shit. Fucking vampire coach just up there. There's all manner of shit that they have to deal with. How the hell have they done so? And I think that answering all of those questions in a fashion that's super interesting and also pays respect to what came before would create something unique and exciting and definitely worth at least 40 pages of a book. Yeah. And if you're looking for direct inspiration, there are actually some pretty cool White Dwarf articles that are not terribly hard to find online about them. Yeah. Uh, they even had the sure. Lore of the Serpents, very fun lore of magic, had some really cool spells. Um, I get <laughs> I get salty whenever other races steal serpent I can all uh uh serpent stuff from the lizard ring because I'm like, no, we have the snake god, leave off. <laughs> but um uh there's a lot of really, really cool stuff. Um, like I know Amazons are probably like cubicle seven needs to stop being cowards <laughs> and cover the Amazons. Um, because like the, the number one thing I think about is if I were if I were gonna make an Amazon character. I would literally like focus very hard on the concept of Krokgar of like someone that has old one tech built into their body and expand on that and see where I could go with it. Can I, just, like, uh, just a small mention to um, Hawk's comment there about Sotek and Marathi and snake bodies and everything. Yeah, I tied that all up so it made sense in my background with a strong use of authority as well um, and how it ties through to Sotek. We can possibly discuss that in a completely different Oh, way. yeah. Oh, yeah. Because um, yeah, that's well, well worth doing. Yeah, that there's a lot of really fun, and oh, granted, themes get stolen by everyone. It's and there's totally there are reasons do. behind it. Um, but like there's there's a lot of fun things. Uh, also, if you were gonna do Amazons and you're like, oh my god, I wish I had more old one lore. Toma Salvation, honest to god, the Toma Salvation has some old one lore that is insane, and it'll make you start wondering about what the fuck. Like even even the new Lustria book, it's good. Um, but it, it doesn't expand as much on the old ones as I would have liked. Um, it's got some cool stuff, but it it mostly focuses on the old ones as specific individuals, which is awesome. Yeah. We needed that. I'm cool with it. Toma Salvation is much more about the race of the old ones, um, especially through the eyes of the um, Belthani tribe, if I remember the right. Belthani mentioned them. Yes, they do. Um, the elves make a few references as well in that book. Um, a, a fair chunk of that was in the first chapter, as I recall. 
Yeah, um, the, it together. the the part with the Belthani generally like blew my fucking mind. Like yeah. I I I haven't gotten around to doing my video on it, but I need to because the stuff they say, the stuff that they knew opens up a yeah. lot of really interesting notes. And and the Belthani, if you take that through to its modern day Warhammer view, are now represented by mostly the Jade College and what remains of the Great Druidic families. Um, so that lore isn't actually lost. Yep. Also, and that that is interesting. Yeah. Also, their story makes you really wonder about a lot of things because they, as far as we know, were kind of like the original human inhabitants of the old world, and they got curb stomped. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> they much. They got. They got totally fucked it was so sad like you think oh sigmar and all those guys they're so cool nah dude they came from the east like they whipped the belfoni so bad east uh, and south um because tribes that came up from uh araby um, right were yeah part of it and then the tribes that came across the old world the old world so probably the world's edge mountains so we're really talking about what amounts to chaos tribes yeah um, they're, they're they're founded in the same some very worship chaos today yeah, a lot of uh, there's a lot of interesting things about like the Eastern Steppes, where a lot of humanity originated from, which is very far yeah. north. <laughs> very it far north, really is. I wrote uh, that on purpose. <laughs> um. Uh. Okay. So we're kind of coming up on time. Is there any kind of last minute questions? Can transformation of Caden be used to turn into any creature? Uh, I I would if I were your GM, I would I would say yes, but I would be very demanding with your cost like whatever you're trying to turn into uh your your casting number could get very big <laughs> yeah so um I, i'm a bit old school whenever i see transformation of caden i just think manticore i can't help myself because that's yeah. what the spell originally was uh, um, yeah, it, that's actually led to some really funny things in the total war community because they did that version where it gives you a manticore and you have those of us like i started playing six dish i'm like can we overcast it and get a dragon <laughs> Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, T Dubs, uh, Andy, do you have a favorite Total War Warhammer faction? Uh, <laughs> uh, um, no, um, whichever one I'm playing. I mean, yeah, how, I feel, how can you even I, choose? I feel that. You know, because you, you get caught up in one, and you're like, yeah, um, uh, and uh, <laughs> I mean, I have. I have generally factions that I really enjoy writing, so thus they're a bit more impactful <laughs> when I play them because I've enjoyed writing in the past and now I'm almost trying to recreate those stories. Um, but I think that I would be lying if I actually gave any single one any real power over another. I just love them all for different it's, reasons. It's hard to pick a favorite child. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really is. Um, I, I, I have individual ones that I prefer, but in terms of playing, no, not at all. Because when I play, I often play to try and find um, all the little details. Why does the faction work the way that it does? Where does it succeed? Where does it fail? I'm often looking at the mechanics of the game itself. I can't help <laughs> and, myself. And, yeah, I was going to um, say, and you literally just can't turn off his, his no, I can't. analytical brain. Um, <laughs> I'm, They're I'm, analyzing it. Just play the um, game, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really hard to just play the freaking game because <laughs> I'm too busy picking it apart. So I, my answer to that one has to be kind of no, sadly. Um, so, okay. I'm, <laughs> there's some goofy questions coming. Oh, okay. We did have this question. So I'm, I am going to toss this question out. Of, do you, So there was a pre-question from someone that asked about um, how a, a GM saying if they had a player that wanted to play an elf who yes. did come into turn into a vampire... 
how would you deal with it? <laughs> even though, even though we both have feelings about that. <laughs> I have very strong feelings. Right. So putting my strong feelings aside, there would be generally two ways of doing it. One is to completely cast aside, cast aside everything I believe in and to simply make it happen. Um, and just, just allow it to occur for reasons. Um, and that would be ultimately deeply unsatisfying for me. Um, and I would almost certainly tinker with that later and turn it into something else, which is point number two, create some sort of unique and interesting, fascinating circumstance that allows it to occur. But I can't actually think off the top of my head immediately, why, how, what makes it an interesting, fascinating thing over elves who themselves could potentially live for almost ever anyway? What are we getting from here? Is it just the curses and the gash getting placed upon this elf for reasons? And again, why? How is that uh, somehow, how is that overwriting the extraordinarily powerful elven soul? How are these things occurring? And I would almost certainly just wrap that up with, well, I'm making it happen. It's some sort of big magic spell. Which changes the nature of the entity that goes through that process. Because the only way to really make it happen would be to make them not an elf anymore. And I suppose you could argue that turning into a vampire is nothing more than a particular set of rituals that are seen through. Whether it's the draining of the blood, replacement of it, or whatever particular route you go down for creating your vampire from a human. Um, but I would be looking for a completely different style of ritual. Something that spoke to draining their soul itself. Turning it into something completely different. Because elves are ultimately mightily tied through to the aether. To the other side. To the other dimension. To the warp, if you prefer your 40k technology uh, terms. Um, and... And vampires are material, 100%. They are almost antithetical to each other. They are so very different. So I would be looking for one hell of a story. And you could make a one hell of a story. That's what I would probably do. Well, grinding my teeth? Yeah, I, I will say, the, the thing is, is the second you step into, like, elf vampire, or even dwarf vampire, or anything like that you're you're literally going into uncharted territory so just have fun yeah. with it and do whatever you want because there's there's nothing we can tell you that i think would be that helpful <laughs> because there's really nothing yeah uh, i mean you're, you're gonna have to make that shit up um and the easiest way to make that shit up is not here and just say well i've got an elf vampire now Woo! that being um, said i would not make them like a regular vampire if you're gonna make an elf vampire make it weird make it the most unsettling horrific nightmarish thing you could possibly think of because yep. it would probably be way weirder yeah, like i'll, I'll it would drop be in one yeah one little factoid if you're trying to imagine the whole family tree of how this could come apart nagash pretty much learned the vast majority of what he knows about necromancy in his youth from dark elves pretty much if you go back to the original version now it's been rewritten and played about with in a variety of different ways but take that little factoid that came from the very first undead book and then look at that, loop it back up and say, Dark Elves clearly know a lot about fucking necromancy then. They understand Dar, they understand how it can be used to do certain things, they understand how it can manifest. They've got all manner of little, oh, there's all manner of souls rising out of this particular part of Nagaroth. They're doing this, that and the other. They're tied to ghosts, they understand how it works. They've got whizzy-woos who can whizzy-woo stuff. So... Clearly, they understand the core concepts. Clearly, the high elves have moved past beyond it. I can't see 
how what is effectively an ancient elven magic anyway that has already reached almost the peak of its capability can in any way be applied to them in an easy vampiric way. So thus, I would have to build something super big and different and exciting and interesting to turn it into something worthwhile to be included. I wouldn't be happy with a just, well, I've got a vampire now. Woo, that was a thing. Because it almost feels like you're just wasting an opportunity for a super cool story. The poor fucker who has become effectively a ghost. A, a, a wiped out version of his soul fragmented and gone just a material creature blanched and broken from its uh, from that individual elf's legacy from, um, no longer worrying about carrying around things like a way shard or anything to potentially capture their soul they have no soul they're, they're dead actually dead walking ghosts there's something cool you could build out of that that's so separate from how Warhammer vampires are generally perceived so yeah there's something in there you yeah know, and yeah, like honestly, you could if if you wanted to go crazy with that, like you could revolve a whole campaign around oh, yeah. non-human vampires. Um, and like what that like because and it, you know, there's the whole thing of like if you go back to random parts of Warhammer Fantasy history, you'll find weird vampires. Like I know for a fact there are dwarf vampires that have existed. Um, I don't consider them like to make sense in the modern version of the setting, but like if you're like, well, I wanted a dwarf vampire, hey, that's fine. If you want a lizardman vampire, cool, fine. You want an orc vampire, cool, fine. Uh, but work with what that would do. What would what would that look like? Don't just make it. Don't yeah. just make it a a Transylvanian dwarf. You know, go oh, crazy, God, no. go wild. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, 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 yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, for me, I you know, if I was gonna do like an elf vampire, I would do a whole thing about like an elf recreating the elixir that Neferata create or trying to so you have this whole thing of they're trying to why? gather the ingredients and the knowledge and why are they doing that who yeah, knows why? you know you'd have That's to explore the question. do they want yeah, to unleash an army of the dead if so why what like what's the advantage there why are they relying on human methods um yeah uh let's see the the one yeah. i'm not so okay so interest <laughs> okay the, the elf that I'm talking about is not one yet and is trying to stop becoming the vampire, becoming a vampire. The process was jump-started when he handled the liber bubonicus <laughs> for an extended duration and got a very hungry corruption, so I gave him vampirism. Well, see, that's not just... That's, that's, not, that's, different. that's different. That's very different, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, in fact, I, I, I would be happy to lean into this. Um, elves, um, elves don't physically corrupt normally there are examples the color for example where they can but it requires a certain specific set of circumstances elves just generally don't but they do mentally mutate in a variety of different ways and they can get unholy thirsts and they could be appear to be a vampire because of that through mutation particularly if they're handling corrupt artifacts totally cool if they're messing around with corrupt shit it's their own fault and i think that's wonderful but are they a vampire by warhammer terms with a capital v are they anything that's related to Nagash, the answer is no, they're a mutant. Um, yeah. And they're corrupted. Uh, that's yeah. a completely different view. And I think that's super cool. I'm yeah, well I like that a lot more. I thought you meant like Nagash vampire, not yeah, has right. the trait of vampirism. <laughs> I think that's I mean, a lot more interesting. It is. And vampirism often pops up as a mutation on the various random mutation uh, 
tables that you can get right the way back to the realms of chaos book there was vampirism in there as well but it wasn't vampirism it wasn't you're not a vampire it's just you demonstrate the traits of vampirism. yeah i will say if you're doing that in a lustria campaign you could have a lot of fun with that elf thinking they're a vampire and maybe yeah. even trying to go to harken to like learn mm. about it only to discover they're not one <laughs> and they I, have I this other problem cool. that could that could be a lot of fun yeah, that would be um, loads of fun, particularly if the elf um, in particular is mistaken, just wrong, utterly appalled at what they've become. But that elf, that elf, if you were going to look at them from a, an outside mystical view, would still have a soul, a corrupted soul, a potentially corrupting soul, a soul claimed by another god, a soul that potentially um, Slanesh would be doing its utmost to get its hands on because Slanesh does love a good old elven soul after all. They're the tastiest mm. of tasty. Um, so there could be some form of conflict um, that you could build out of that as well, particularly if, say, for example, um, it was Nurgle that was uh, pestilently causing them to have um, unsatiated thirsts. There could be something quite fun in that, stories that could be told. Um, and, yeah, draw, dragging the undead into that as well. Just great. Yeah, you yeah, uh, yeah. Ho yeah, hopefully that answers the general question and gives you some ideas. Uh, I think there's a lot you could do there, especially, mm. uh, Andy's talked about this a lot, but elves have such, like, heightened senses an elf that is forced into vampirism in the sense of having to drink blood, you could have a lot of fun with that. Of They would probably be very keenly aware of the differences between different kinds of blood. And on top of being disgusted with the fact they have to drink blood, what kind of blood can they palate? Because elves yeah, are I'll, very sensitive. Yeah, I'll add an extra detail in that. My uh, elves in my game, this is purely for mine, not overall Warhammer lore. Me, war, just be clear on that. But my elves are... Uh, capable of almost tasting the soul that laid within. So when they eat meat, um, that animal is well treated. They're aware of it. Um, they can tell. They can tell what sort of life it potentially had. Dark elves have this um, heightened to a significant degree. Um, and just drinking different bloods, they can tell what species it is, what sort of life they had, whether they were indulged, not indulged. They get taste for particular types of meat because of this. Um, and that wraps into just the idea that elves are not just physical creatures. They are gaining more than just the physicality around them. And, and tying something like that to enhancing that, taking that uh, sense that they have and then make it, wrapping it up so that they can taste every single last detail of that life. It could then potentially be um, almost transformative for them, becoming as addictive as just eating in general. Because um, we need food, it causes us to have hunger pangs. They could have instead spiritual pangs when they're not getting them uh, opened up to certain sensations that they want to taste. The blood is the way to it. You could build a really cool story out of that. That'd be super fun. Yep. Yeah. And I would also play around with like if you know what if they can glean types of knowledge and stuff from that. Maybe give the player almost an incentive to hey, you could try utilizing this for information, but you could also get addicted and it could become a problem also hawk you're fired for that pun <laughs> you're, you're not a mod anymore get out <laughs> get the heads <laughs> but uh yeah um okay we are well over time <laughs> so um this has been a lot of fun um thank you everyone for coming by uh this was a blast i really like this new system it's actually a lot smoother and cleaner than obs and i'll be trying to get some additional goodies um for the future but um i don't think we have anything else super important to go um so i think next week if your schedule allows i'm not 100 sure um 
yes, good. Okay. So next week, super fucking excited about this. We're starting like the full on lore chats. Um, we're not lore talking. Chats. We're not talking mechanics. We're not talking systems. We're just talking fucking Warhammer lore. Uh, and next week, uh, the episode is titled "The Deconstruction of Malekith," and we are <laughs> we are going to just go all in on the Witch King and try and somehow stuff that into like two to two and a half hours, which is not going to be enough time. Uh, but we're gonna try. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk. We're going to be talking about Malekith, talking about his lore, what it means, how it's changed over the years, uh, what like the original projection for his story was, what ended up happening with his story what that kind of, you know, how, you know, how that looks and feels like. Um, and it should be a lot of fun because Malekith is genuinely probably the most interesting character in Warhammer fantasy or close to it. Yeah. Um, I love Malekith. Malekith is. And there's going to be a lot of other characters including that topic. So like you're, you know, we're going to be talking about Marathi. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. Anarian. We're going to be talking mm-hmm. about probably Tyrion Teclis a little bit. We're going to mm-hmm. be talking about um, like a lot. Uh, so there, it should be a ton of fun. I hope you're all looking forward to it. Um, and, uh, yeah, Andy, you got anything as we're heading out other than, uh, by the way, uh, there have been links popping up in the chat. Please, 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 please be sure to check out Andy stuff over on Lawhammer and the Rookery. Uh, if you're not subscribed to their YouTube channels, you should be, um, thank you, Hawk. Uh, so please subscribe to their channels. Uh, also you can check out their Please, please. (laughs) (laughs) Um, they also have really amazing blogs. Andy mentioned those quite a bit. Um, you can find them on their discords and their Patreons. Um, I support them on Patreon, so you should support them on Patreon. You have no excuse. I um, 100% agree with that. <laughs> Mornington, I don't. Do Dark Elves have repeater crossbows because American? What? <laughs> do Americans even have repeater crossbows? And also, uh, Andy, so this is. Okay, okay. We're gonna. I have one last question for you because it oh, comes one up last a question. Lot. It, has, oh, it comes it. up a lot. Okay, hey, so the, freshman. <laughs> don't get me started. Okay, don't, don't, don't not get me started. So, <clears throat> I'm gonna restrict you to try and keep this like to a handful of words. Okay. I'll keep um, it down to a couple of sentences. Here we go. Right. So, a lot of people ask this for the Warhammer races. Let's say like the main sixteen. Right, so like Chaos Dwarfs, the playable Warhammer Fantasy Battle Races. What historical or fantasy thing mainly inspired that said race? So like the Empire, most people would say the Holy Roman Empire. Holy Roman Empire, yes. Because a lot of people get very confused uh, and will think like Dark Elves are Americans or Canadians when that is not correct. (laughs) No, not at all. Um, so, uh, so how about how about I pitch you each race and you okay, just give, give me an each one and I'll give them uh, I'll give a loose one but do be okay. aware that uh, before I will add one caveat to it all and that's that all of them are based on much more than a single thing. Yes, most of them have been significantly adapted over time and have taken on an entirely new life, but most of them do have a glimmering of a beginnings which might not necessarily be where you expect. Yeah, so the empire. Uh, Holy Roman Empire. Uh, Warriors of Chaos. Conan. Uh, Demons of Chaos. Oh, yeah. Warriors of Chaos. No, Michael Moorcock. You've got to be fair. Uh, Michael Moorcock's Chaos. Demons of Chaos, Michael Moorcock's Chaos again. Okay. Um, Uh, Skaven. Uh, Skaven are actually relatively unique. Um, And 
I think that trying to say that they're based in any one thing would be a lie, other than Jez Goodwin's genius. Yeah, uh, Skaven are genuinely, I think, one of the most unique things about Warhammer Fantasy, which is why so many people yep. love them. Uh, yep. Greenskins, Orcs and Goblins. Yeah, Orcs and Goblins from Tolkien. Uh, high Elves. High Elves are a cross between Tolkien and Michael Moorcock, um, Melibonians in particular. Dark Elves. Melibonians, Michael Moorcock. Uh, Wood Elves. <sighs> Tolkien. Wood Elves. Uh, uh, Lizardmen. Yeah, we're back to the real world again, plus a whole matter of other cool shit. Um, but yeah, you're looking at Mesoamerica stuff. Okay, awesome. Uh, dwarfs. Dwarfs. Token. Yep. Uh, dwarves. Dwar dwarves. Yeah, yeah, yeah that. Uh, is as the inspiration. Uh, chaos dwarfs. Mm. Um, they're based on dwarfs, really. Um, mixed with chaos, they're again a relatively unique creation with an awful lot of Assyrian and uh, Middle Eastern influences, which is where you get things like um, not just the Great Taurus but the Great Africa one, the Lamassu. Um, uh, it's a it's a mixture of some Middle Eastern stuff, but mostly it's a unique creation. Awesome. Uh, yeah, probably the most be... obvious faction. Funny enough, uh, Bretonia. <laughs> Um, uh, actually, no, because um, Bretonia is Arthurian England. They're not really the French version at all anymore. Um, original Bretonia was very much based on pre-revolutionary France, um, so it was that, and oh, then it got just turned into it got turned into King Arthur. Um, and Arthurian legend dominates now. Admittedly, the original uh, romance uh, came from France, so you could argue French, yeah. but really, really, no. It's it's very much an English version. Yeah, uh, I've watching uh, history videos about Arthurian legend is hilarious. Of like, it's not they're like, ah, yes, the British king, and then you're like, wait, all these original authors are French. Yeah, they're French, <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly it. Um, uh, but it's about um, it's about English legend, um, or indeed legend that they attach to England. Yeah, uh, two kings. Uh, yeah, Egypt. Yeah. Um, ancient Egypt. That's super easy, and very little beyond that as well. Um, which is a little surprising. Yeah, which hilariously is why they did not make it into Age of Sigmars, according to uh, sources. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 for the old world, which is hilarious. It really doesn't surprise me in the slightest. And I was a little surprised that they ported over the Lizardmen for exactly the same reason. I expected when the Lizardmen arrived in Age of Sigmar, they'd be quite different. So they didn't just look like a cultural lift. Yeah. And Lore-wise, they were a lot different, but the menus yeah. didn't change until very recently. Um, yeah, quite. They're almost sculpt. identical. Ooh, wow, new sculpts. Yeah, they're, uh, they're really nice. <laughs> uh, vampire counts. Oh, Dracula. Um, I mean, it's obviously far more beyond that, and they built on the legend, so it's vampire lore in terms of cinematic lore, actually, more than it is real-world lore um, in general, but we start off with Dracula there. Um, the Karsteins are pretty much that in a nutshell, and they were the driving force behind the original creation of the vampire course, vampire Kent's army list. <laughs> You're telling me Vlad von Karstein is based on Count Vlad Dracula? What? I, I, I know it's crazy, isn't it? I remember. I, I remember. Discussing, <laughs> I remember discussing this with Steve Savile, who wrote the Black Library novels, um, because and I did a picture for him of Vlad actually, um, and uh, he described. I described him as having read the bits. He's actually almost the Heathcliff of vampires, just because of the moodiness. Um, <laughs> for those of you who know your uh, English literature, but moving on. <laughs> um, Norska, because a lot of people yeah. ask about them specifically, but yeah, that's uh, 
Vikings, and that rather than any particular yeah, pop, pop um, culture Vikings, pop culture Vikings to their core, which is such a shame because um, depending on which version of Norseby you get, they've effectively said, you know, Vikings are bad guys. Eh, yeah, definitely. Really I was super happy when they got the Tome of Corruption expansion that goes into like their actual culture. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I did quite a bit of um, bits and bobs and that to try and just, you just, you just got to try and muddy those waters because you don't want it to be cu this culture. Real world culture is synonymous with evil. Yeah. Well, it's like they, they show up in the old world. People do trade with them. That lore is yep. that, that lore even that predated the Tome of Corruption. That wasn't new. So it's like, they can't all be bad. Um, Vampire Coast. Oh, interesting. Vampire Coast. Um, so this is, um, uh, I remember debating this a bajillion years ago when we first spotted it pop up on the map. And they're like, where the fuck did Vampire Coast come from? They've just put the word vampire and dropped it down there, haven't they? <laughs> and I've never, I've never really gone beyond that. I mean, other than obviously looking at the fact that they've changed it over the course of time and it's almost become Pirates of the Caribbean-esque yeah. style vampire. Yeah, uh, hey, um, for everyone in chat, Vampire Coast predates Pirates of the Caribbean as you know them now. Okay, so we were here uh, first. <laughs> yeah, it's the truth. But they turned into the Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, um, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Total War did lean into it a lot heavier than it already was. <laughs> but you know, I'm cool with that because they're yeah. awesome. I shit y'all not. I, I, if any of y'all are music buffs, if you go watch the Vampire Coast reveal trailer, the music motif they give for Luther Harkin is literally just Jack Jack Sparrow's theme from the first Pirates movie. It's hilarious. It's very on the nose. <laughs> very much so. Um, I think that's pretty. Ready okay, okay. So I see people arguing about it in chat, so I'll just ask this race: the Famir. Ah, uh, right. So Famir, old Celtic legends, um, particularly over into Irish with. With Baylor and the Fomorians. Um, they were originally created um, to be a unique species for Warhammer and um, and somewhat mindlessly to a degree, given um, the nature of their procreation and the only way that they could work. For those of you who know, um, it's it's pretty freaking gruesome. Yeah, um, the, the new lore is a lot better. <laughs> exactly. And it's been ignored and to the point that uh, when Fancy Roleplay 4 came around, there was a significant debate as to whether we should even use them. We had permission to use them. We could. But their foundation point was potentially, I mean, it's, it's potentially traumatic for some people if we used them as they were intentionally written at that point. And I was like, but we included them, but with a very vague um, write-up. Um, but cut a long story short, uh, Celtic myth. Yeah, I am. I am so glad the Famir got repaired. Because, uh, like, it, it, plus, it makes the matriarchs so much more interesting. Um, yeah, it really does. Um, uh, they're, they're, oh, they're all right. I can't believe I forgot them. Just like G Games Workshop always likes to. Uh, Beastmen. <laughs> ah, Beastmen. Uh, uh, really, it's RuneQuest brews. Um, but they, in turn, were based on Michael Murkoff's Sound Chaos. Awesome. And then... Kislev. I'll, I'll let y'all have that one, the, Chad. The obvious one is to say Russia, but it's actually significantly more complicated than that. If you look at, say, the Ungol peoples that live there as well, if you look at some of the peoples that lived before Kislev came to par power, so to speak, but Russia is easy. Uh, Kamiya, I would, correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but I, I believe Araby is more like Arabian Nights, not so much historical, but more fantastical. Yes, uh, it granted, is. Um, granted, if you go back, there are, I will grant you, Old Araby is very... In the same great. way <laughs> that Britonia is the Old Grail romances. 
um, Araby, what little exists of it is far more the fantastical side of Arabian Nights. Um, if you look at, say, for example, the War Master troops that were created, you had bloody flying carpet users and all the rest of it. Um, and much of the older lore for Araby was just almost bad stereotypes of the sort of things you might get in Aladdin and all of its various uh, associated pieces of fairy tales from the East. Um, it's it's often pretty problematic in terms of its um, presentation because it dials deep into stereotype. Um, uh, I would love for it to get a proper treatment. Yeah, I uh, I have I've, I've told y'all about this chat. I have a video that I just finished writing about Araby that I'm going to be releasing probably in a week or two. Um, and we that is something that I address in the video for it to ever be interpreted in Total War. There. Everybody has to have some adjustments made. Not like War Master is actually a decent starting place, um, but um, is. There, there there is some changes that have to be made, uh, especially when the really really old lore. Um, like like if you go back far enough, they're they're like Allah exists, and it's like yeah no, yeah, no. <laughs> no 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 no, because um, it's if like you listen, take a look, Christianity, uh, Judaism yeah. don't exist in Warhammer, so I don't think Islam yeah. should either. It's best just to leave them out. One hundred percent shouldn't, um, and. I mean, it was um, touched up and uh, and slightly better handled um, in, say, for example, the Lieber Necris and some of the attendant lore that popped up in the Inferno magazines, where there was more of a um, that you had the religions of the jinn and they needed to use the jinn to get any magic because they were so far away from the gates that there was no real way to use magic in the same way when you were down um, in Araby and into the getting closer to the equator. Um, and there was some extra pieces added there as well for Nagash and why he needed so much warp stone to do everything that he was doing because of the lack of natural magic that was in the area. And if you use that as a start and use the djinns and take, for example, the ship that was inside um, the Dreadfleet. shipping game. Yeah. Dreadfleet, thank you very much. Okay, and how it was using effectively elementals, but djinn to um, produce its capabilities. Um, I think you then start moving into something that's a bit more interesting, a bit more... Uh, unique rather than necessarily just being let's port this bit over port that bit over port yeah that there over, yeah there are a magic definitely things I, I think between dreadfleet and warmaster and stuff and some of the lore adjacent to the tomb kings and stuff there are some things you can lean into that are really exciting yeah. and we'll talk about that uh, yeah, but anyway i gotta get andy out of here <laughs> i've kept him hostage for too long <laughs> um <laughs> see him fanning himself over there he's gonna go cool off <laughs> oh yeah sorry Sorry, I forgot one race. Ogre Kingdoms. Mm, this one's a, a bit more problematic in terms of... when I remember when the Ogre Kingdoms first came out in their new reform fashion, so the very first Ogre King army list. Yeah, 6th edition and, was very different from what they turned into later. Yeah, and they effectively were, interestingly given they'd used the stereotype before, big gigantic Mongols. Um, mm. And they were given thin... Um, very mongoloid um, uh, moustaches. Everything about them was very much the threat from the east and the great horde that could come over. Um, and whilst it was a loose lift from that, the bits that they chose to lift were somewhat painfully obvious and they were fall falling onto racial stereotypes rather than necessarily cultural stereotypes. Um, and that made them a touch a touch unfortunate. They got upgraded quite a lot over time. They changed the skin color of them as well. So to begin with, they were all given what they described sallow skin, and some of the descriptions were a little bit unfortunate. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah the... loosely speaking, um, the, <laughs> the threat these... from the step. 
yeah the the sixth edition ogre kingdom if if you ever want to want to like read like a dramatic shift read the sixth edition ogre kingdoms book yeah. and then the eighth edition ogre kingdoms book they are completely different <laughs> yeah wildly Quite different so yeah um and it was uh it was good because they needed to be. <laughs> yeah, they like I. I don't even know if I like in Total War Warhammer. I would. I. I feel like the, the you can still see very small hints of kind of that original Mongolian inspiration, but it's barely. It gets completely swallowed up yeah. by now. It's one now. It's one influence amongst many, and and influences and easy ways of uh, interacting with the material for people who are new to it. It's it's not a bad thing. Saying, for example, oh, it's just you know the Holy Roman Empire from history, but with a polytheism and magic and loads of cannons. Away you go, and you're like, okay, I think I understand that. And people can go look at real world history and go, oh, it's just this. So it's not necessarily bad. But when you're moving through your hobgobbler cans um, and you're moving through the Ungols and you're moving through so many drawing from the same stereotypes, largely because of a cultural lack of awareness of the deep and very different versions of Eastern culture there is that they could use as an influence. But no, all they do is, ah, oh, it's Mongols, isn't it? Because that's all they apparently know because they haven't done much research. That's yeah, the, a bit, man, the, a bit, the in oh. it on the end really, really uh, <laughs> painted, painted that picture well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and I, I think it is very important to acknowledge that like, I don't, with very rare exception, almost every Warhammer race had very problematic Part, por, parts um but it has grown a lot as a setting thankfully and it has avoid surprisingly avoided a lot of pitfalls that modern fantasy settings or sci-fi settings uh yeah i, I are probably agree i mean where warhammer was at its strongest in terms of not falling into a gigantic horrible pit of horrible stereotypes and cultural lifts is where it was dealing with their own culture european culture or alternatively the lifts that they took from tolkien and michael moorcock when they took those two along with some other fantasy authors of the time but much less so and their basic european stuff they were broadly fine when they moved outwards it got in some places really ugly, particularly yeah. in the third edition of Warhammer. Oh. Yeah. Luckily, uh, all of those that are at least presently being used have been heavily cleaned up. And those that are not presently being yeah. used, I genuinely believe are kind of being cleaned up behind the scenes because I think they do want to use them. Because, yeah. um, I mean, I've, I've heard rumors you know, of things with like Games Workshop uh, uh, one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh maybe one day wanting to go back to the pond and uh, that's gonna take some rewrites that's gonna take some big boy rewrites <laughs> yeah pretty big boy rewrites. but like Cathay, Cathay is substantially different now than mm -hmm. what it used to be wildly wildly different and i love modern Cathay. it's awesome yeah me too all right anyway no more questions chat we're done uh thank you all uh, again for watching uh andy thank you so much for coming by pleasure to have you as always, always. i'm super excited for next week and, Me too. Uh, yep. Chat. Uh, I'm gonna. I am stupid and didn't do a green screen for this, so I have to send y'all on a raid before I can <laughs> off the thing. So I'm gonna send y'all to go watch uh, Nikki paint minis because she's gonna paint a bunch of lizardmen for me in the near future. But she is currently painting. I don't know what she's painting right now, but uh, I think she's painting space marines or something. Oh, go she's painting. She's painting hammering. Yes. Hammering. Subscribe. Yes, check it. out Lawhammer every 
Every Friday, pretty much. Although this Friday, we're off this Friday because um, we're all having a holiday. Um, but I'm going to be posting a bunch of videos up on YouTube. That's good, though, because that means you can get caught up. It means I can get caught yes, up. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. Because, <laughs> uh, god damn, there's a lot of Lawhammer. <laughs> uh, 20, so, yeah. there'll be, come Friday, 25 episodes. Um, Jesus. Already. And that officially only 10 episodes, but it's all the tales that lie behind. Well, and it, it moves quick. Like for anyone watching, like it moves so quick. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. y'all got, y'all got through part one so fast. <laughs> that was the plan. Yeah. Granted, granted the sessions are long. Like it's not, it's not like, it's not like it was like four, two hour sessions. No, they're, they're hefty. But anyway, bye chat. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye. Get out of here. Get out of my face. <laughs>